the Protect Your Neck Podcast. Top 5 WEC fights with Brad Taschuk. As per usual, we went deep, ladies and gentlemen, so strap in. Hot air hangs like a dead man from a white oak tree. People sitting on porches thinking how things used to be. Dark night It's a dark night Dark night It's a dark night What is up, you savages? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I am your host, Dan Tom. Analyst is work you can find over at MMAJunkie.com, but on this here program, the Protect Your Neck Podcast, we break down high-level MMA, but we do it in a slightly different way, especially on these top five shows. Um, you know, we don't like to timestamp them too much, but we are in the year of 2020 worldwide COVID-19 epidemic. So we're going to be leaning more on a bit of a historical retrospective, some fun fights, some stuff that hopefully you can leave this episode and have plenty of things to watch. To do that, of course, I always need a guest co-host. And, uh, you know, it, it's always fun when I have a, a first-time guest co-host, but it really a long-time one that uh, I've wanted to get on. Of course, he's a co-host on his own podcast. It is Brad Taschuk, who you can find on Twitter, at Brazchuk, of course, from the MMA Analysis Podcast, a podcast I always tip my hat to, the OGs over there. Thank you for joining, Brad. Thank you for having me, man. I always appreciate the uh, the shout outs that you give to myself and the MMA analysis guys. Uh, you know, we we have a little bit of a different take on MMA from the uh, the professionals such as yourself who uh, take this seriously and put in the work. We just sort of like to have a couple drinks and chat and uh, see where the the podcast takes us. So it's uh, it's going to be a little different adventure for me, but uh, I know that uh, you can get off the rails a little bit. So I, I'm sure we'll go there today. Yeah, for better or worse, mostly worse, as most of my listeners know, I'm very honest, and my sense of humor, uh, as you kind of uh, hinted at your show, well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's not exactly a highbrow, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean, I, I say it in just a very self-honest, self-deprecating way, I'm a nine-year-old at heart, so dick jokes make me laugh, so kind of what Brad was alluding to, the, the, their podcast is like labeled as betting and MMA breakdowns, but... Like, if we had a pie chart for, like, the betting, the MMA talk, and the talk <laughs> about men's genitalia and hogs, like, I would yep. love to see that pie chart. I really would, you know. <laughs> we'll work something in for you. I'll, I'll make sure uh, I'll have to timestamp the next episode and see where we go, especially right now because uh, we're doing some rewatches of old events and stuff like that. So, yeah, kind of going down the same road that, that you're going here. And, man, it makes for some good listening and uh, some good watching. As we get the plugs out of the way and we push on to the show, of course, we're going to be doing top five WEC fights if you haven't read the title or if you're just listening and joining us now. Um, I do want to say, though, uh, you guys have been picking, you guys recently covered a WEC fight in your watchbacks. And by the way, if you're not subscribing, whether it's on YouTube or iTunes, the MMA analysis, great podcast. You guys are picking great cards. But you guys recently did a WEC card as we steer it back into uh, the topic of this show, right? We did. Um, we were between a few of them. We we had a few. They uh, entrusted me to make the decision, and we decided to go with WEC 35, which is an event people talk about a lot, although I think we might end up talking about at least one of the fights uh, during our podcast today, not to, to spoil the list too much. Uh, but this is a forgotten card, partly because it gets into that 
you know, welterweight, light heavyweight sort of range of the uh, the WEC, which is forgotten as well. Um, but it is absolutely phenomenal in terms of the action that you see on that card. And it, it really just is an exemplary example of the WEC. Yeah, uh, for example, this isn't tipping my hat on anything, but one of the many notes I have on my page here in front of me, Brad, it says WEC 35, great card. There are two cards additionally, which I'll be giving out at some point of the episode, and I'll recap and remind you at the end here. But as far as like top to bottom great cards, which is really hard to do with these WEC cards because you're really hard pressed not to find a bad card, but like bad fights. So um, hopefully, I'm sure you have some favorites that you'll uh, really uh, strongly recommend the listeners, Brad, and I'll definitely list those off uh, sometime through this episode. Absolutely. Um, I, I think we'll get into those as we start to, to go through our different lists, because I could name a bunch of stuff off of any WEC card uh, off the top of my head, but uh, I think we'll get a little bit more specific as we go. Absolutely. And listeners of the show already know the rules. I will do my quick recap into it as we roll in here into it you know, briefly here. But I also kind of want to start this episode with a little bit of just kind of some historical... Um, I don't know what you what, what you call it. Just setting up the scene, so to speak, Brad, because this is a really fun topic, man. Um, you know, some topics are, are, are I don't want to say are more fun than others because, you know, I, I'll be surprised on this show. I'll be like, I don't know about this topic or, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a different topic with a different host. We end up having a kick-ass show. So I'm not talking about that so much, but, like, this is the kind of topic, and I'm sure you'd agree with me, Brad, like, it deserves its respect. It deserves its due. You know what I'm saying? There's so much to the WEC and, you know, people think WEC, they think the final few events, they think Bantamweight, Featherweight, Lightweight, and that's it. But there were multiple iterations of the WEC and they were all entertaining in their own way. They were all great and they they served a really important purpose for MMA as a whole. Absolutely. Uh, to your point, if you're playing like the Kevin De- uh, Bacon Seven Degrees of Separation game with MMA... Like plenty of the uh, your, your favorites, as far as if you're if you're smart and you know which fighters to link to, a lot of them will, will will cross paths in the WEC. Like so, in other words, if you do your WEC homework, you will kick ass at that seven degrees of separation <laughs> MMA game. You know what I'm you know what I'm talking about, Brad? Absolutely, yeah. So for people that don't know, the WEC is founded by Scott Adams, who's their matchmaker up till a certain point of time, and Reed Harris, who. Reed Harris, if you talk to him, you know, he's a, he's a really uh, genuine guy. I, I almost compare him to a Scott Coker. You know, the praise that Scott Coker gets a lot of these guys as far as appreciating the martial artists and really making sure, like, Reed Harris, he was just, like, you could see him in the background going in to shake hands doing the Joe Silva bit, but he was also checking to see if guys were okay. Um, and he had a, a real strong respect. They start the WEC essentially in 2001. Their first card is called Princes of Pain, which Brad, chime in here. It's very classic MMA in the sense of like whether we're talking commentary or the way it's just talked about or titled in general. It, it runs the fine line between mixed martial arts and gay BDSM, right? You don't know what you're getting with these titles. Yes, and this was definitely, you know, turn of the millennium when cards were named, and it was all about the name. You've got your your sudden impacts and your worlds collide and onslaughts in the UFC. Uh, and as you get further away from the UFC, the names get a little bit more and more ridiculous. And oh, 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 WC have... definitely started off on the right page. Oh, they have one that's like, what are they like five in, and they're they're already using this time. It's personal. Like the, like, <laughs> it's great, but that card, the the Princes of Pain, it's headlined by Dan Severn and Travis Fulton. Again, your your seven degrees of separation game. Travis Fulton's a great one, folks. Um, oh. Just to kind of give you a timestamp, 
But you know what I was surprised by? Uh, you know, there's some names on there that, that hardcores may know. But Leonard Garcia is down there scrapping at 22 years old. I didn't realize he was yeah. born in 79. I thought he was younger for some <laughs> reason. But yeah, Leonard Garcia officially on the first WEC card for trivia there, folks. Yeah, that one, I was looking at the cards. I didn't actually watch this card because it's, uh, it's one of the difficult ones to find. It's not on Fight Pass. Um, but I, I don't think there's anything that we're missing by not having watched that card and, unless you were able to get one of those you know California uh, tapes back in the day um, during the exchanges. But uh, it's definitely got some historical value, that's for sure. Yeah, and not to spoil, but like the old fights um the really old ones aren't going to be on my list, so I'm not stepping on anything here. But, like, if you do go back and watch some of them, it really just casts, like, it's a different light. It's, like, you've got this, like, Penn and Teller-looking, like, uh, commentator dude. Like, it's it's creepy. <laughs> he was great on some of the <laughs> Halloween events. Oh, yeah. So that... You dressed up and, uh, you know, I was watching some of these. And I know... I think you got into MMA around the same time as me, sort of that like mid aughts period. Yes. Uh, maybe not directly with Tough, but yes. like right around that area. Uh, and I remember I was watching some of these cards back, and there's an ad on the the ring card girl's ass for a bar called uh, Bogart and Lulu's, which was oh this like God. notorious bar in uh, Visalia where there was, like, three murders and, like, 17 stabbings and all sorts of shit. And I was watching these cards, and I was like, I know that name. Why do I know that name? So I went and looked it up and went down that weird rabbit hole. But this, these are the places the WEC takes you. Oh, I mean, oh, totally. I mean, you want to talk about from, like, the places being advertised, the fighters, which is a given, to, like, the referees. And I'm not hating on Josh Rosenthal, by the way, but, like, there are crime <laughs> side stories for every, every for so many people. There's so many crime side stories in the side streets and offshoots, right? Like, we yep. can reference here. Um, yes, and you've got our uh, favorite accomplice to murder, um, John Shorley. Oh, my God, yes. Yes. John Shorley, like, there was a name that popped up, like, I think Justin Levin. And I'm like, I remember when Justin Levin was, like, one of the only, like, fighters who oh. died. You know what I'm saying? Like, now, like, yep. I feel like when I'm do I was doing, like, some top five lists for... Uh, uh, for, for 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 junkie for work, and I'm like, oh, this fight does not age as well because this guy is now dead. And there's like more and more of those as we go on. Now it feels like it's turning into like pro wrestling at this point. Oh, dude, and a lot of you, a lot of them are your brothers from the north. But uh, but but anyways, the, <laughs> on that positive note, um, essentially <laughs> the, the the organization pushes on, and they have a Pentagon, by the way, folks. They actually have a Pentagon in the earlier fights if yes. you go and look. But when Zufa LLC buys them in 2006, they change it to a smaller version. It's almost like a variation of the smaller octagon, which sadly we see less uh, less these days. Again, not to timestamp the show, but we're in 2020 now. Um, but when they take over, uh, Sean Shelby gets instituted. They, they initially retained Scott Adams, but but Sean Shelby, um, which you can kind of see coming, gets instituted as the uh, head head matchmaker over there again in 2006. Um, and they made a couple small changes, uh, but yeah, uh, and the WEC, of course, if you look at the overall too, especially the early days, like, like Brad was saying, it wasn't just lighter weight classes. Like the early days, essentially you see a bunch of people from tough one. Um, yes, you do, you know, you, you see a lot of weight classes, although they do have heavyweight fights. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I got the WECs marked down as far as when their vacant titles were debuted. Is it is it a hot is it is this a hot trivia item, Brad? That they never actually had a heavyweight title. They didn't, but I believe they had a super heavyweight title, didn't they? That would have to be in the um, early ones because they. Ha I think it was a tournament title because you if you go to their earlier fights, you'll see like tournament brackets with guys like Brandon Vera on there. 
Um, yep. You know, getting his early knockouts and stuff and, and wiping house. Uh, so I think that's what um, that's what they offered as far as heavyweights. But, like, it was funny because later on, and again, this isn't spoiling anything, but, like, you'll see Mark Munoz making his debut, who was a UFC middleweight. I think he even got a uh, knockout at light heavyweight, but he, he fights at heavyweight at the WEC, if I'm not cor- mistaken, against a Czech Congo-looking dude. Um, but again, there was, <laughs> was no, that Chuck like... Was Grigsby? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great call. But there's no... But there's no... Um, I think he broke his hand trying to deliver that, like, really, like, gorilla-like ground and pound where he got... Munoz really got that, um, you know... Uh, he got the mat. <laughs> yeah. He knocked him out, like, three punches later, but he broke his hand on the mat first. <laughs> That was brutal. I remember that one. <laughs> I think that was a pretty brutal card too, from what I remember. As far as there was a lot of lot of finishes, which again, not uncommon when you go back and look at these WEC cards, folks. Absolutely. And anyways, uh, WEC essentially it supplies a lot of like the tough seasons, particularly tough one to like tough five lightweights. You'll see a lot of that in the early WEC. Uh, before again, you start getting guys like we don't get Uriah Faber. I think even till when the hell is it? Uh, shoot, Uriah Faber debuts at. Uh, 19, 19, I think. Yep, 19. Nate Diaz debuts at 12. Um, you don't get Carlos Condit or Dominic Cruz to WEC 26. Uh, you get Swanson and Brian Stan on that same show, by the way. Miguel Torres, which surprised me, he doesn't debut till WEC 30. I don't know why I remembered it differently in my head. It just seemed like at that point in his career, he already had so many fights that even if you hadn't necessarily seen him on TV, you had probably heard about him. He was a little bit of a fixture, and obviously he went on to a, a pretty stellar run for a while there in WC. So it's one of those guys that it, it feels like he was there for a lot longer than he was. Sure thing. Well, now we're practically into the fight, so now let's get into the top five portion since we laid this part out of the show. Essentially, we go from five to one, passing the basketball back and forth. Me and Brad were kind of talking pre-show, and, and we think there's definitely going to be some crossover, which is fine. There's no rules. The lunatics run the asylum here. We will double dive into them. If that happens, fear not, and we will get to yours and our honorable mentions at the very end as we get out of here. So uh, strap in, folks. This should be a fun one. You ready, Brad? I'm absolutely ready. All right. Cheers, cheers, man. And cheers to anybody watching who's, uh, you know, partaking. They should be. <laughs> uh, well, according to, uh, like, uh, the social media, like, uh, story, like, this dude was going to everyone's dumpsters and it was just all empty alcohol bottles everywhere and it was great. <laughs> He's, like, ratting everybody out. He goes, ah, look at your nice little family. Oh, full of wine, empty wine bottles in the trash. And he was just, hey, like, good for those people. guys. Do you have those dudes that go around on, like a Tuesday night or whatever your recycling night is and they go through and they pick out the bottles. It, it's a great time for them. Like not good for anybody else right now, but Hey, it is. It is. We don't have an HOA, but, uh, three letters, uh, that, that if people are scratching that HOA, we'll get back to three letters you are familiar with. That is WEC fights. Don't worry. Dan Tom gets <laughs> off track, but not, not too much today. Uh, Brad, stay I'm going to target. Stay on target. That's right. That's all right. That's that is, that is me with everything. <laughs> Um, all right, take the ball from ADD Dan over here, and uh, Brad, what is your number five as far as top five WEC fights? Your top five, again, this folks, the list are subjective. All right, so I know Dan Tom. I know that when you come on Dan Tom's show, you got to have a hipster pick. So I am going full hipster on this first pick, and my first fight, I was almost going to try and argue for a tie here, but... No other fight from this guy quite measures up to, and I know you said you're not going with anything old school. This is super old school. WEC 9, Olaf Alfonso, John Polakowski. Yes. This fight is absolute carnage. 
every Olaf fight was pretty much carnage. But this one, it, it holds a special place in my heart uh, to set the table for it because I'm sure there's some people out here that, that haven't seen this fight. John Polakowski accepted this fight, I think, uh, as the story goes, at noon the day of the fight. Uh, this was a guy who was a Muay Thai fighter. Uh, he had never fought in MMA before. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll step in there and fight. And Olaf Alfonso is an absolute crazy man. Um, so if you're picturing Olaf, you've got the the wild man hair. And then you take if like Rich Franklin and Andre Arlovsky's nose is fucked. Um, that's Olaf's nose. So this dude, I, I think in the, the post-fight interview for this fight, he actually says, like, the announcer uh, at the time, I forget who it was. It, it might have been uh, it was might have been Ron Kruk if they were on HDNet, or it might have been Ryan Bennett, rest in peace. Yep. Um, he was like, your nose is going, like, three different directions right now, man. How many times have you broken it? And he's like, nine times. And he's like, does this make ten? He's like, no, I didn't break it this fight. <laughs> but he's just bleeding from everywhere. Uh I started to take some play-by-play for this fight just for the people that haven't seen it. And this isn't going to make for the best radio, but I I wrote down the first round because the the first round is just absolutely bonkers. The whole fight is, but there's some like some breaks in it where they stop to check cuts and things like that, uh, which probably in the long run helps the, the pace of the fight stay as absurd as it is the whole way through. But the first round is just, it just right through Olaf. He comes out swinging. He lands a couple punches, backs uh, Polakowski off to the fence. Polakowski drops him. Olaf goes like full on nesty plunge, just like straight back onto the canvas. Um, and then just scrambles up, lands a massive suplex. Uh, these guys start scrambling, um, <laughs> Polakowski actually punches him like eight times in the back of the head and Rosenthal's roughing this fight he does not care at all he's just out there for blood just as much as these other guys uh, and then they start getting into like there's some weird grappling exchanges in this too for a guy that's never fought in MMA before like Olaf gets a, a standing arm triangle at one point and uses it to get mount so it it's not a good fight by conventional fight standards but this is it's just a fight it is an absolute battle and and these guys go to war and it it, i had to like pause it a few times to catch up and try and get my playboy play by play uh keep going to keep going but uh, i i lost track after the first round and this is something that if you've never seen it you have to go back and watch this fight because it's just nuts i I second that because i went back to watch this fight and i'm gonna have to go back and watch it again because i also lost track uh, after the first round for different (laughs) reasons uh, I'm glad we mentioned Olaf Alonso, who is not on my list, but he's a guy I wanted to make sure we mention anyways. If you go yes. back and you'll see, you'll see him pop up a lot, but he's what I like to call like a plug-and-play action fighter, and you can see why he got booked a lot, win or lose, and repeatedly. Yep. Like You could tell, like, it, it, like I would love to see both the conversations Olaf had with the matchmakers, and he's credited, as, obviously, being Mexican from Mexico. I'm not sure if he... Uh, eventually camped up in California or what, but I would also love to see like his drives back and forth. Like 
because he was fighting so much at a certain point. Like, I wonder if, if, if the, uh, you know, the, uh, what do you call the border guard, like, like rec- started recognizing him at a certain point. Like, oh, this is where the guy comes back and his nose gets fucked up again. And he comes back yep. with a rearranged nose. <laughs> because he was a plug-and-play action fighter. And this yep. one, I'll be honest, it's not even on my honorable mentions list. Uh, but I was watching it late with the volume down, so I couldn't tell you who was commentating. Uh, though I do know uh, Bennett did, did do uh, right around that era. Uh, and I also had a couple of uh, uh, whiskeys and uh, I had a volume down, didn't want to wake up the lady next to me. Right. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm watching it quiet. I think I passed out about this fight, but it was a stupid action fight. Like the first round, um, it's definitely back, uh, it's, you know, worth to go back and watch. And you can kind of see why this guy would be kind of like that undercard darling, you know, like, like, like kind of like, uh, to put like a more modern day comparison, like almost like a. A Jolo's on in a sense like he's going to be a guy you put either on the main card or the undercard and he's going to do his job either way he might yeah. you know he's not necessarily going to be a title challenger or anything like that but he's going to do his job yeah and I think Olaf might have even got to the point where he, he did get a title maybe shot, he like McCullough right or yeah he like got that. a title shot um no although that fight was the one that I was thinking about pairing this one with for uh, a tie for fifth because yes. It's actually, like, a, a really good fight. Like, Olaf has McCullough in some trouble in yeah. the first round. Uh, and we mentioned John Shorley a few minutes ago. This is the infamous knockout where McCullough sends his mouthpiece across the cage. John Shorley's like, oh, better go fetch this mouthpiece. And then McCullough just flatlines him while he's on the ground. And Shorley takes forever to, to dawdle back with the mouthpiece. So McCullough lands, like, two or three more shots on the ground. It's just laser guided punches by the way we all love fighters and are grateful for them and the entertainment and all that we're not by any means demeaning that um and nor do i want to unfairly play into the stereotype that mma seems like it's been spending its lifetime trying to shed however (laughs) you can't deny that there are shady people involved with mma and uh whether it's a name you mentioned or perhaps we've already mentioned some names already like, one thing I, I noticed, Brad, you can chime in on this, like, there's a lot of, especially if you, you, you follow the hardcore storylines and, and, you know, offshoots, there's a lot of uh, legal troubles and legal side stories with a lot of characters from sponsors, refs, to fighters in the WEC, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, what was I, I think I was watching one of the events and there was, like, a, a howitzer uh, fight t-shirt and wasn't that one of those companies that got in a little bit of trouble for uh some of the things they said so there's uh there is some weird attachments especially in this this area of california because yeah. you get a, a mixed bag there for sure you get that inland empire to like you know <laughs> randoms from mexico like olaf alonzo and i'm not nothing against my mexican brothers or sisters by the way i'm just saying like you drew from a large there was a lot of variables oh yeah a lot of meth areas, fighters from meth areas, we'll say. A lot of, a lot of Breaking Bad area fighters in a Breaking hey, Bad era of uh, MMA. Let's just say in the early days of the WEC, when uh, when Nick Diaz fought there, he was one of the good boys. Totally, yeah, totally. Yep, that's right, that's right. Um, oh man, all right. Well, that was a good that was a good number five. My number five is is a much newer WEC, um, and this one could easily be on anybody's list. Uh, I don't know how hipster of a pick it is for me, but it is a pick based on just being technical. And even though one of the fighters wasn't technical in the way like, uh, you know, uh, I guess like, like Joe Rogan would say technical, like, you know, a Martin Campman holding his hands up or whatever, like, you know, those fighters that uh, R- Rogan would fawn over for being technical. And I'm not 
not hating on him for doing so, but I'm just saying like in a different way. Both guys were technical in their own odd ways, but that was Dominic Cruz and Joseph Benavidez. They had two great fights, Brad. I am talking about the one at WEC 50 because it was a five-round fight. And more specifically, both are great fights, but it's not just because we get two extra rounds of what was a great matchup between two unorthodox guys. You got Benavidez shifting, one of the first guys doing shifting, corralling combos to chopping leg kicks, uh, striking from odd angles from the southpaw stance that gave a lot of guys trouble. But you also have Dominic Cruz, who's coming into his own, right? He's really kind of uh, on his way to final form Cruz uh, as far as being ahead of the... And he's really ahead of the pack, whether you like Cruz or like his style or not. He can't deny that that guy was ahead of the pack. And in the second fight in particular, and I'll let you weigh in here, Brad, why I like it is because you see them countering all the stuff from the first fight. And that's one thing I love about the WEC. You don't just get fun style parody, but you get a lot of like storyline parody. You get a lot of storylines uh, between a lot of guys, whether it was a two-fight saga, three-fight saga, etc. But they all have their own storylines outside of the cage. And more specifically with this fight, it was inside of the cage. You know, Dominic Cruz is one of my favorite takedowns, the knee tap takedown. Sometimes he would go Barzagard variation off a chain. But he was owning guys, and, and he still did really well even in the UFC. You know, one of the few guys to take down Dillashaw in his prime, etc. But you see uh, Joseph Benavides have a counter for the uh, <laughs> knee tap takedown. And you just see like them playing off each other, man. And it was a split decision. Um, I agree with the decision, but you know it was it was it's, it's always nice to say as a Benavides fan. Oh, if you're a Benavides fan for a while, he only lost like close decisions to uh, you know the, or maybe plus the knockout to, to Demetrius Johnson to some of the best pound for pound fighters. And this is one you can hang your hat on even in a, even in a loss for Joseph Benavides. It was a great fight. Yeah, this is another one because you know a little while after, obviously, when Dominic Cruz went to the the, the UFC, he fought. DJ in that uh, that versus fight, um, and it was another one where obviously there was a huge size disparity, but these guys showed you like Benavidez and Mighty Mouse, and those fights showed you just how good they were. That they were fighting ten pounds up, and even as flyweights, they're not big flyweights, and they hung with the best bantamweight in the world. And you know when you're talking about Dominic Cruz, I. I I know that people say sometimes that he's the greatest bandwidth of all time, but I, I really think that he kind of gets undersold because people don't necessarily like his style, yep. all the injuries, obviously, so you don't get the, the same amount of activity that you get out of other guys. Um, but the fact that Dominic Cruz was pretty much wiping everybody out at this point uh, and not necessarily like finishing them all or, or doing anything like that, but he was difficult to hit he was diff almost impossible to take down like it was it was tough to look good when you were fighting against dominic cruz and you saw benavidez come in in this fight uh and this goes for a few other wc matchups like you said where it was really just a, a continuation and the evolution of their first fight uh you saw the same sort of thing with uh, WC 48 um, Benuelos and Jorgensen in their rematch yeah, it yeah. didn't look like round one when they came out they came out they started going at it and it was like oh this is round four uh, and then obviously you had like the Cerrone Varner storylines and, and that sort of stuff where that was uh, you know it continued on from their first fight so yep. you see that a lot in the WC and and you see a lot more of that that evolution uh, it, it feels like guys really adapted to their their surroundings really well that's an awesome pick. Yeah, definitely. And there's another one, but I don't want to jump in because it almost made my list. So maybe it's on yours. I won't touch it, but it's a higher weight class narrative as well. 
um, from about the middle days. But yeah, I, I, I'm glad you. Uh, I figured you'd appreciate that one as well. But yeah, well put. And and again, I'm not going to go on my Dominic Cruz rant um, for the sake of people's ears. But I'm glad someone else uh, <laughs> as well has that opinion who I respect. Because again, whether you like him or like his style or not, it's hard to deny what he's done. And and when you list out his stats, I think it surprises a lot of people, even some hardcores. When you really like step back and look at what how, how long his career spans through. Yeah, and the thing about like this time period too, Cruz was always trying to shake that quick loss to Faber. Yeah, that he had when he, when he challenged for the yeah uh, it was when the WEC at least. Yes, um, and challenge for the the featherweight title right off the bat, and it right. um, it was just you know Faber has that guillotine. He landed that guillotine with regularity back in that time, and uh, and that was just what happened. But it seemed like he was always trying to shake the the reputation that he gained from picked up in that loss, and uh, I, I think eventually he got there. But this is still during that. T- time period where where people were like yeah but he got subbed by Faber in like a minute so whatever yeah exactly and the other yeah. crazy thing about this fight oh sorry no go ahead um this this didn't even win fight of the night on this card <laughs> which i'm which, looking at it right now which card and, was this uh, uh this uh wc50 the yeah, 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 totally, fight. Yeah, yeah um it actually went to scott jorgensen and brad pickett that night Oh wow! So. Scotty Jorgensen threw on some fun <laughs> fights back in the day. Don't sleep on him, folks. He he was an action fighter too. That was that was fun because with the WEC, you just you know you just get a lot of fun style fights. Um, and wrestle boxers were part of the equation. And I'm not going to jaw on because we'll we'll naturally get into the rest as 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 we push forward. But uh, but yeah, uh, you're number four, sir. As we push on, it is your turn. You at the steering wheel now. What ended up making your cut for number four? All right. So number four, you know. Canadian, I'm biased. I've got to get some of that CanCon in there, that Canadian content. So my number four is going to be WEC 49, their only trip to Canada. And this was, uh, you know, they they started unofficially called it the Canadian Featherweight Championship at the time. Uh, this was Mark Hominick and Eve, as they said, jab way. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he cringed every time he heard that, but Mark Hominick and Yves Jabouin, uh, WEC 49, the first round of this fight is just absolutely sublime striking. Um, as far as, you know, we talk about MMA and, and MMA striking a lot and how guys are usually good at like one or two things. Um, but you've got Yves Jabouin, who was one of the best fighters at actually mixing punches and kicks in combinations. Oh, yeah. He could throw elbows in there as well, switch stances, go all three levels. Uh, this guy could do everything on the feet. And then you've got Hominick, who as a striker, he's always willing to stand in the pocket. And he's willing to try and use his head movement and, and slip some shots uh, and, and just fire right back. So this was a, a perfect match. I know that they were trying to make this in, in Canada for a long, long time. So the fact that they finally got it done and it turned into the fight that it did where, you know, I was, I was talking about the striking in the first round, which is back and forth. It was really, really fun to watch. Uh, but the finish to this fight is incredible. Uh, I know that Hominick, like, Jouin starts to get tired a little bit in the second round because the pace these guys were on was just absolutely torrid. Uh, and drops him with a body, uh, a liver shot. Yep. So I, I know My you love that. My favorite punches. 
even when he's going for some follow-up shots again, he lands like a, a knee to the liver uh, as Jibwen's uh, up against the cage and, and stuff like that. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Jibwen's like, all right, I've had enough of this. He comes out, he clips him with a, a huge right. Hominick drops. Uh, Jibwen jumps on top of him. And then Hominick hits, you know, you don't think of him as a grappler, but this is a guy um, submitted... Eve Edwards in the, in the yep. UFC back at the the height well maybe not the height of Eve's powers but like pretty close to that peak of of Eve so he's got a little bit of grappling in him he hits a beautiful sweep gets on top and, and manages to finish the fight and it's like seven or eight minutes but just action-packed you know perfect mix of everything as the WEC was I think the sweep that uh I think this was before we went on air uh the, yeah. the, the sweep I was trying to find and pluck out of my mind it was this sweep i'm pretty sure because i'm pretty sure it's a flower slash pendulum sweep variation of sorts yeah and that's it man this is a great i'm glad you made it your number four because it is my number four uh i couldn't avoid putting this one on i'm sure listeners knew this was going to be on my list somewhere so i'm it couldn't have worked out perfect that we landed (laughs) on this one and this is one that i i I figured we would have because again I'm, i'm having a canadian on my show but this was a Canadian turf war in the making. You know, this was on my Fight Vault top five featherweight wars. It will nice. stay. It will stay there. Um, <laughs> and the funny thing is, Jabouin was probably a, a, a bantamweight, as I'm mispronouncing his name as well. But like, he, you know, he You're was doing better a, than Todd Harris. Yeah. So oh my. <laughs> so, my I love. I, I used to get like uh, Todd Harris and what was the other guy confused so much when I was watching him back in the day until I saw him do the post fight interview. Then I would realize who it was. Okay. Um, um, Who's the other guy? Yeah. Who's the guy that was a really California bro? Like, uh, hey man, just came from the California pizza kitchen and you look great. No, I don't know why I'm to, shitting on the guy. Like he's he's great, but uh, he just looks like a I'll total have to look like it up. he was he was a versus guy though, right? Yeah, and he looks he was a total California guy too. Like he was <laughs> whether you're a non-American or an American stereotyping a Californian, like you're right. When, when you Craig Hummer. Yeah. Craig Hummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he seemed like such a great guy, by the way. I'm not shitting on him, but he was just like, hey, Uriah, man, uh, you look really great for the guillotine. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I I got nothing on that. I don't know why. Like, I, I, just, I, I, I remember the cadences so well. Like Someone was talking about Gus Johnson, my favorite Gus Johnson thing. I know everyone shits on Gus, but my favorite thing was when he, when he would double say the first name as he would slowly step in a frame. He'd be like, Misha, Misha. <laughs> like that was every I, was, I, was like, I, would, I would lose it every time like that was the Gus Johnson <laughs> you know what we Rana. actually we did um, an Elite XC card recently on our MMA analysis rewatch and we were like you know what Gus Johnson he had those couple moments you know granted where right. things just went off the rail um, the makeup job towards the end was like that makeup shotgun in the Simpsons yes uh, <laughs> But, you know, generally, he did, a, for a guy who didn't know MMA, he did a pretty good job. So I, I can't shit on him too much. He did, and he was good within his realm. But but back to this fight and back to Eves. What I liked about Eves, you said mixing up all three levels. Like, you know, we talk about guys like Barbosa and Marlon Marais, who, to different degrees, are still doing very well, right? They're still very much in relevant what is today, modern day, or relevant to now. And they're still one of the few guys, even in the year of 2020, Brad, who can kick going backwards who can kick to counter, right? And Eves was one of the few guys who's doing that, and he's doing it like over 10 years ago, over a decade ago. He's doing that in high-level mixed martial arts fights. Like, not against nobody's either. And you see a lot of that kind of a kick and body kick 
uh, as far as his body offerings. Of course, they weren't as good as Hominix, but you know, <laughs> you know, Eves is right there too. And uh, it's just a fantastic fight. I've drawn on about it so much. People know how I feel. But what I will kind of cap off is, man, I was watching a lot of old school Team Tompkins fights, and I was kind of getting down. Now, I I wasn't um, nearly as close at all with Sean Tompkins as I was with Robert Fallis. But Sean Tompkins, of course, uh, especially toward the end of the career, um, they had a, a real, uh, I think Extreme Couture Vancouver, we had a, obviously ties, Extreme Couture Las Vegas, the two main Extreme Coutures, obviously Las Vegas being the main one. So we would see a young Chris Hordesky, Sam Stout. Uh, Hominick, not as much, admittedly. He had more ties uh, to a different part of Canada that you probably know better on. But we would see a, l- a lot of those guys. I was able to take classes. I was lucky enough to take classes from Sean Tompkins, both striking and MMA. And so I always rooted for these guys, right? I always had a soft spot for the, for this Canadian contingent. And it's always a bummer for me going back to watch. And not because, because Fallis had a much closer relationship, so I just kind of get bummed if I have to see that in general. But, like, yep. Tompkins, not as much a close connection, but I, I still feel for him because it was, A, a sad story, and B, which we won't really get into because Thompson, I think Tompkins makes it, yeah, he makes it into the... He, he, he's alive for all the WEC career, but for those who follow these fighters, whether it's Hominick or other fighters we might talk about here, folks, they all went on this crazy downturn as soon as, like, Sean Tompkins died. And I was like, oh, yeah. And we saw a bit of that, too, with Fallis and a lot of the fighters that he was coaching. And it was yeah. just crazy. It was this whole, like, deja vu for me. I'm sorry to sidetrack, folks, but it was, like, it was kind of crazy for me. That that's all right. I remember, you know, obviously you were you're very close to Fallis. Uh, my first ever MMA interview was with Dave Jansen, um, and yeah, yeah. during the interview he couldn't speak more glowingly of uh, of Robert Fallis. So Those I never were, had a chance yeah, to, to interact with him, but uh, I can tell just from having spoke to other people just how special that dude was. And obviously, as far as Canadian MMA goes, you've got the whole Montreal scene, which kind of speaks for itself, uh, GSP and, and all those guys. Um, but then after that, it was Team Tompkins and sort of that London area, which is like an hour away from where I live. So um, really sort of close and growing up, those were a lot of the guys that I, I started to gravitate towards in terms of my fandom. Absolutely. And if you're going to stereotype like, okay, Brazil, you're probably going to have jiu-jitsu. Russia, you're probably going to have sambo. <laughs> like for people that don't realize, like as far as combat sports goes, um, I don't know how underrated or unheralded, depends on how closely you're following, but Canada's always, you know, to Montreal has its own scene, kind of, but Canada's always had a nice selection of kickboxers as far as combat sports goes. Yeah. Um, kickboxers who could box, kickboxers that could go in a traditional Muay Thai and would compete there. So for us people, for, for people watching MMA and we're, we're, we're aware of Canada's martial arts presence, you were kind of waiting for, okay, when are the, the kickboxers going to start invading in? And I think Sean Tompkins' crew was a great example as far as a flag bearer for that for you guys. Definitely. It's just a, a shame that it ended a, a little bit uh, prematurely, a lot prematurely. Absolutely. But that's Absolutely. part of the game. Um, since we have a crossover, do you want to do a Chinese fire drill? And I'll just uh, go with my number three to kick us off for the Absolutely. Next, next part of this. Yeah. All right. My number three is a really obvious one. It's probably going to be on everybody's list. Um, <laughs> it's a, it would probably be a very common one, maybe for a number one, I could say. And the hipster in me wants to leave it off for that reason, Brad. Uh, perhaps that's why it falls on number three. You know where I'm going? I think I know where you're going. Okay, you probably know where I'm going. But the thing is, I can't because, like, again, I, I, I consider myself a tough noob, even though there were fights, perhaps even main cards at certain times when we're talking about Ortiz and, and Shamrock that I watched before. 
uh, the tough series. I'm not going to front. I wasn't one of these people, like I think I was talking about on the light heavyweight episode with uh, Simon Head. Like, I wasn't calling my friends on the phone, like, Griffin's fighting Bonner, right? Like, I can't say that I have that story, Brad. But the closest thing I have to that story happens to be an amazing fight, and that is Leonard Garcia versus Chan Sung Jung, Korean Zombie, number one, obviously. We're talking about WEC. 48 and you'll definitely chime in here with me on the card maybe tell me where your placement is but let me just kind of set up what i mean by the by the unique portion of me why this is my pick as far as the the setup the forrest griffin bonner comparison so basically i was brad i was at a i was at a house party right and there was alcohol i remember there was like a table full of edibles like a bunch of like really good cookies (laughs) And I didn't have a problem with eating those, by the way, but I remember like eating like three before realizing they were edibles. I'm like, wow, okay, this is going to be <laughs> so this is a precursor to set the table. Um, it's going to be a wild night. Yeah. These guys were like hard. These weren't even like MMA casuals. There wasn't m- many people there who even followed MMA. It was pretty much me and my buddy Joe. Shout out to Joe Vernola, I think. We're just the only ones watching the prelims, right? Because this was the last fight leading in and really smart. I'm sure Sean Shelby fucking still pats himself on the back and he deserves so for, you know, yep. because the lead in fight is so important, you know, for selling, uh, yep. you could argue that the lead in fight is almost just as important as the headlining fight and leaving the taste in your mouth. Uh, as far as sales goes, perhaps not for the whole card, obviously, but it's a, for a matchmaker perspective, as far as what makes a successful card, this is an important one to watch. And, at the moment, there's an illegal poker game going on with some money going down. It's, you know, not the highest stakes, but for the guys I'm hanging out with, pretty high stakes, <laughs> right? Okay? And so that's got the attention, right? And you've got people in different parts of the room. This fight starts, Brad. Two people are watching. Me and my buddy Joe, like I said. <laughs> By the third round, the, the the poker game has stopped. Everybody has stopped. The girls who don't give a shit about fighting, they didn't care about the other fights, which there were some really good fights on this card, which hopefully we'll talk about. Some that don't get talked about because WC48 was so packed. Everybody was watching this fight by the end of it, and it was just we just couldn't believe what we saw. It wasn't the most technical fight, but it's probably the closest, as lame as that story is. It's the closest for me as far as a Stefan Bonner call up your friend moment. You just saw people slowly bumping each other's shoulder. Check this out. You saw people slowly losing their focus on what they were doing and focusing on the TV. I, I haven't been able to recreate it since. It's got to be on this list. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of fights that capture that sort of attention. You know, Dana's got his whole, like, four corners, like, soccer, basketball, that sort of stuff in a fight. Um, but this is one of those, like, if that fight is on the fourth corner, everyone is going to that corner. Some <laughs> other fights, eh, maybe, maybe not. Um, but this fight was, was incredible. And as a... I wasn't like a, a long-term WEC fan going back to the the HDNet days, uh, just because we didn't have HDNet in Canada until like after WEC was already on uh, Versus or here in Canada TSN. Uh, so I, I didn't really start to get into it until like the the events in the the 30s and, and stuff like that. But Same. going yeah. back uh, as far as I could in my live viewing of the WEC to, to watch it build up to the point where they could do a pay-per-view. Well, WEC couldn't do a pay-per-view, but you know, the UFC could present a pay-per-view on their behalf. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, but getting to that point and seeing the stuff that had already happened on the undercard, cause you've got, 
I'm not sure if that's when Chad Mendes makes his debut in the WEC, but I know he's on the undercard and, and he basically like rips a dude's head off. Um, you've got Pickett beating DJ on that undercard. Pettis winning with one of his like 17 triangle chokes that he had in the WEC seemed like that f- dude finished everybody like oh, yeah. in the second or third round with a triangle. Uh, and then you cap it all off with this oh, and totally. like just absolutely losing your mind. Um, as you said, it wasn't the most technical of fights, but these were two guys that, you know, Chen Sun Jung, I, I had known him from the, the Sengoku um featherweight tournament at this point uh i think he he was in a couple fights over there um didn't necessarily have the the greatest results um but leonard garcia you knew he was coming into brawl um so it it turned out pretty uh pretty couldn't have been better as far as like you said sean shelby was concerned and to lead into their only pay-per-view totally and you know as you touched on the card there uh perfect because yeah yeah, one of Demetrius Johnson's only losses was on that to Brad Pickett, who's always been a favorite of mine personally. I've always loved, been a big, big Brad Pickett fan. But yep. on those three cards that I wanted to highlight as far as, like, top to bottom, the most at cards, um, WEC 48 is one of those next to, as Brad mentioned off the top of the show, uh, WEC 35. But, yeah, WEC 48 is right there, too. Yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, uh, did the, uh, that one wasn't on your list, huh? And no, no problem if it wasn't, by the way. I'm not judging. It was not on my list. Um, I, I I went a little too hipster and and kept it off the list. I, no, I think good. It's good. It's it, it might be the decision that does it for me. Because sometimes, yes. like you, you in this case, it's okay because Korean Zombie got it back in, in the UFC and their rematch. Um, but still, just watching that fight and then seeing the the decision play out the way it did. Yeah, we were in that Leonard Garcia, Diego Sanchez sort of period where if it went to decision, they were getting the decision. That's just, that's how life went. Um, It was like uh, Omagawa by must decision uh, back then. Um, But yeah, my, uh, (laughs) this one didn't make my, uh, my top five, but it was certainly right at the top of the honorable mention list. I love how even in the highlights, like Garcia's missing every punch, like... (laughs) Yeah, but I could see how like judges got bullshitted because it was also Garcia had that Greg Jackson thing where even if it wasn't landed, where you're throwing spitting shit at the end, last ten seconds of every round, and you're swaying all the stupid judges in your what in your favor. So that was really common, like at its peak back then. Leave an impression. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what was your number three then, sir? That was my number three. So my number three is, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about Asian fighters uh, to this point, but now we're going to get into a a Japanese fighter and not one who gets much acclaim. Um, So there's a couple other guys, and I'm sure we'll talk about one of them for sure uh, at some point in this podcast, just because uh, I, I know that having listened to a couple of the shows, it's pretty easy to get Dan into a rant on Takei Mizugaki. But, <laughs> Shout out to my uh, buddy Jordan Killian too, by the way. He's all about the <laughs> Mitsugaki fan club. Go on, sorry. Yeah, but this fight is from the aforementioned WEC 35, and this is Carlos Condit defending his welterweight title against Hiromitsu Miura. Um, so this fight is, especially if you don't know anything about Miura, this fight is absolutely shocking to go in and watch because 
you know, he's he's got like a decent record. His like career MMA records only like nine and four or nine and five. He went off and did some boxing after that. Uh, I think he got to the point where he challenged for some sort of lower level world title over in Japan in, in boxing. So he had a decent boxing career. Um, but this guy, he was a boxer and a judoka. And he comes out in this fight and land his first round uh, is actually pretty dominant over Condit. He lands a bunch of throws, lands some heavy strikes. Obviously, we know that Condit can take a shot, and there's not a lot of quitting that dude. So he just keeps coming back for more and more and more and more. And honestly, Condit was great in the UFC, and you know his fight with Robbie Lawler, especially that fifth round, that will go down in the history books as one of the best ever but where he really cultivated that reputation was his wec run absolutely Uh, you know he wasn't necessarily fighting the top welterweights in the world at this time but if you saw a welterweight ranking list in sort of the the 2006 2008 time period before he made that jump over to ufc and it didn't have him in the top 10 people would be like whoa well, what what are you doing? Like, where's where's Carlos Condit? This guy is phenomenal. Uh, and in this fight, he shows a lot of heart. Uh, he shows a lot of his skills, and he shows just how reckless he was. Because this is back when he was at uh, Fit NHB, as opposed yep. to um, going over to the counterparts in Albuquerque. Um, but he he takes a lot of stuff, and he dishes it back. And there are probably three or four times in this fight where I'm like, oh, Mira's done. Like, he's got nothing left in the tank. And then he pops up, lands another little uh, judo throw, and starts raining down some ground and pound again. And you're like, holy shit. Uh, and, and again, it's one of those fights. I, I found with a lot of the fights that I I really, really loved in the, the WEC that a lot of the finishes left something to be desired. Uh, and I think this one compared to what these guys went through for the previous three whatever rounds uh the stoppage here was was a bit weak especially seeing how many times mira bounced back but it's hard to argue with this fight as a whole so this is my number three yeah it's one of those where it's like uh and they even say it in the commentary the finishing knee wasn't like ha- have a lot of gusto on it but yeah. uh no one was complaining and not even not even mira and it's funny because <laughs> in the pre-fight package like Carlos Condit actually is talking about. He's like, he's you know, my knee's gonna win it for me. And by the way, you sunk my battleship. This is my next one, number two. So we're still ah. right on the same. We're still right on. The, I like it though because we're still right on the same lines. And I'm sure pe- listeners of this podcast know that's gonna go on here. By the way, before I launch into this fight with you and touch on your points, I want to touch on one point you brought up, which is great. I, I totally forgot, and I, I, I did know this, and I did recently rewatch this yet again. Like I haven't watched this fight enough. But yeah, he's with Fit NHB, which is Tom and Arlene Vaughn. And Arlene Vaughn actually yep. surprises is the striking coach. Uh, Tom Vaughn can strike more of a catch wrestling guy. Uh, I, I, I like Tim Means a lot, and Tim Means is a super technical striker. So it's kind of funny. I always wanted to see, perhaps maybe I'll talk about that in fights that never happened. Uh, I don't know if this was ever close to happening, but I always wanted to see that fight, the Tim Means versus Carlos Condit in the <laughs> UFC. Um, yeah, but you, you as you mentioned that it's funny because when I was rewatching that, I'm like, I don't remember Carlos Condit having this much of a jab, but this was before he went to Jackson, so that's yep. what happened to the jab. But shit, <laughs> 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 I'm not trying to throw shade, by the way, just being honest. I mean, you know, right? It's, it's true. Like you see it, and it's against you know, as far as boxers go, it's against probably one of the top 
four or five boxers that he's fought in his MMA career, too. Right, and outside of his knees, I didn't realize the jab would be one of his more popular strikes. But back to the style matchup, back to Japanese fighters like you opened this, Brad. I like it because Japanese fighters, and I think I talked to this... We didn't talk, by the way, that much pre-pod, and I try not to. We try to save it for the pod, but I think we talked about this pre-pod again, uh, Brad, where... Japanese fighters played a really interesting role in WEC and MMA at this time because before WEC, or even, I should say, during WEC, we're going back to their beginning, right, 2001, um, till even now in the UFC, right, uh, 2000 onward, Japanese fighters have traditionally struggled, both stereotypically and factually, right, in Western uh, North American organizations, if, if that's not painting with too broad a brush, right? That's fair. Um, but it was great because WEC knew how to use these guys, though. Um, whereas, even though they weren't doing Japanese-style rules or the, doing Japanese-style matchmaking, they used these Japanese fighters in the way that Japanese promoters would also use these fighters as far as win or lose, we know you're really good for an action fight. Hence, guys like Takeo Mitsugaki, which I'm sure we'll talk about Ooh. more before this episode's <laughs> over. But that's what I really liked about the Japanese fighters they brought over. Because lest we not forget, folks, Pride is still operating in the beginning of the WEC. And even organizations like Dream and Deep are still putting on really good fucking fights. Uh, pardon my French. <laughs> during this time. So it, it, it it's funny. Like, WEC, arguably even though these fighters were still taking L's, if we probably put it at a pie chart, majority still probably took L's. I would argue WEC more than Strikeforce, UFC, uh, Bellator, now or then, um, they utilize the, the Asian talent the best as far as their matchmaking with North, North American fighters. Is that, is that, is that, would you agree with that, Brad? Or I, I think so, because you look at the, the promotions and you see not only the best performances out of the Japanese fighters, but the the most exciting fights. And it, it really looks like these guys did their homework as far as bringing in the, the Japanese fighters. Like, right. you know, you talked about Takei Mizugaki and Takei Mizugaki as uh, obviously, you know, he's Japanese. He came up in like a deep and uh, what was their counterpart that actually used the cage at the time? Um, GCM. Yes. Great, yeah. Greatest yeah. common multiple where they like had a, a tournament in the cage and stuff like that. And it was really novel for Japanese MMA at the time. Um, I, I don't really think of him as a, a Japanese style fighter in terms of the no. the techniques that he employs. Yeah. He's, you talked about like wrestle boxers yes. earlier, and yes. that's really sort of his archetype as a fighter. Um, but they knew how to bring him in and who to put him against, and you know how you'd get that awesome sort of clinch war that he had. So, you know, not to to step on a, a particular fight too much, right. um, but. Like they really knew where to bring these guys in, where to place them. They sort of knew that Mira's base and his boxing would really give Condit trouble in this fight. Um, I'm not sure they thought it would give him this much trouble, uh, but they they were able to to pick and choose these guys and and really make hay with uh, in North American MMA a, a talent pool that really hadn't been tapped to that point, both in terms of the geographical location and in terms of the weight classes. Totally. And yeah, Mitsugaki definitely had that more wrestle boxing style, which it wasn't not necessarily uncommon for fighters um, to have, you know, I was talking about stylistic matchups and just wrestle boxers in general. Uh, you had Eddie Alvarez for an American one versus Tatsuya Kawajiri versus like, the Japanese style of it. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was either that or kind of rounding back to the matchup we're talking about, 
judo boxers. Again, judo and wrestling, they both, you know, Craig, I was talking about on the, on the live chat where uh, they both rely heavily on their bases. You're aware of your base because that is your base martial art that you've been training in. You're not going to be so readily to leave your feet. Not that uh, Mira or another fighter I'm going to talk about for my number one weren't throwing kicks per se. Uh, they weren't necessarily strictly judo boxers or wrestle boxers. Um, but man, did they... Did, did it mix well because not just using the Asians because again if you look at Mira or the fighter I'm going to mention in my number one to prove the point what you just you know uh, said as well Brad as far as they knew how to pick their spots you look at Mira or the guy I'm going to talk about for my number one their best moments were in the WEC whereas it's the inverse in other organizations whereas the Japanese fighter had the big name everybody was excited but yeah. by the time, or not even being too late, whenever they did come over, it was usually a bust in some shape or form. You know what I'm saying? Whereas yes. the Japanese fighters in WEC, to kind of seal this point, they overperformed. And their records, that's what the records state. Yeah. yeah, I was actually just going back to one of your previous shows. I think it was uh, with my my fellow Canadian, A.A. Braun, Aaron Braunstetter, yeah. um, where it was uh, top five prospects that didn't pan out. And uh, the big one for me was, was Hatsu Hiyoki. And yeah. Yeah. nobody has that sort of career trajectory better than Hiyoki. Like, that yeah. dude looked like the best featherweight in the world when he was over in Japan, yeah. save for Aldo, maybe, at the, at the time. Um, and I was so excited to try and watch that fight. Um, Obviously, it, it never ended up happening, but that's exactly what you're talking about, where a guy looks like an absolute yeah. world beater outside of the North American promotions, UFC, whatever, however you want to say it, uh, and then comes over and it's just sort of like, oh, that was that was disappointing. Um, Absolutely. By the, by the way, shout out to HDNet for uh, my sister's HDNet subscription where she didn't know that one of the only reasons why I went to babysit for her in the <laughs> mid to late aughts was because she had an HDNet subscription. So I got to see like, nice. Hatsuhi Ryan Jimmo's RIP, speaking of fighters, we were talking about like all these like like different, like whether it was like MFC or like Dream or like other organizations, like it was just it was just fun. Marlon Sandro, got to see a lot of him on some HDNet. Yeah. Um, but back to this fight, and we talked about the the Japanese aspect, but just to cap it off, the stylistic aspect again, not to retread too much ground, but this is one of my favorite style fights, and in, in MMA in general, you know, like we talk about Frank Shamrock in the late '90s, where you start finally seeing certain fighters start mixing the martial arts, but usually the style fights are one style versus one style for the most part in the 90s, right, Brad? But in this aughts, like the 2000 to 2010 and WEC era, you get the prime two styles versus two styles. And again, my favorite two styles versus two styles is no better represented in the fight that we're getting off track kind of a bit, my fault. <laughs> but Carlos Condit versus Mira, you get Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu, which again, it makes sense they go together. If you're going to throw kicks, you're going to be taken down more. You better have good jujitsu. And if you throw kicks, it means you probably have decent leg dexterity. You like to use your legs. So if you're smart, you're fighting MMA, you probably developed your guard before you're wrestling. Hence, you saw a lot of Muay Thai jujitsu guys. And again, as we just explained, I won't retread the ground why wrestling, boxing, or in this case, judo and boxing go so well together. Um, 
And then you mix those two together, and it's great because you get you get the boxer putting a heavy amount of weight on his lead leg, so he's getting opened up for leg kicks, getting picked on the inside. So he's like, I gotta go inside now. And he starts mm-hmm. bombing on the tall, lanky Muay Thai guy with punches, and the Muay Thai guy's like, Oh no, I gotta clinch him. And then he starts kneeing them, and the judo guy's like, oh, I can't get kneed. I'm gonna toss you on toss your him. head. Yeah. And then now you're in this fucking guard, and it's just, it's a scramble session. So like certain yep. fucking matchups man stylistically just just breed great fights and they knew that combo shelby knew that fucking combo and you got it in spades here folks wec 35 one of the best wec cards and i just have to say that as far as mma visuals go nothing gets my pants on the ceiling quicker than a perfectly executed judo throw so oh yeah (laughs) it's just like Show me a, a clip of uh, GSP Hughes three uh, on repeat where he uh, just ends up like right in side mount, full weight right on on Hughes's chest, or a bunch of the examples from Mira Condit, and man, that's that's the way to my heart. Oh, so good, great. I'm glad you had this one on your list. Uh, all right, so we I'm sorry, went... I stole it from you. No, Jeez. it's all good. That was my number two, uh, which was your number three. I already gave my number three, so let's do another Chinese fire drill. And why don't you fire off uh, what you had for your number two? All right. My number two, uh, we're going to head to the lightweight division for this one. And just saying that doesn't really narrow it down. No, it doesn't. Because there's like a million lightweight fights. I know in the comments uh, to uh, you posting this episode uh, on Twitter and, and some other places, there's some lightweight fights that people have suggested. But the one I'm going with here... Um, you know, I, I was almost not even going to have this on my list at all. And then I watched it again earlier today. And I was just like, this this fight is nuts. Uh, it's Benson Henderson and Donald Cerrone at WEC 43. Uh, and again, this probably didn't make a lot of other people's lists. But I absolutely love this fight. I, I, I really enjoy, like, MMA these days has sort of evolved to a point where the the tactics have come into play in, in such a, a huge way that you don't see guys willing to be too aggressive when they get into grappling exchanges or sacrifice position or, or things like that. Whereas when you go back to the heyday of these guys, and it was really kind of a staple of the, the WEC as a whole, guys were willing to go for anything from any position. And within the first minute and a half of this fight, you've got Cerrone locking up that ridiculous power guillotine, uh, making Henderson sacrifice position. He gets on top, switches it immediately to a triangle. Then you've got uh, Benson because he saw Cerrone's previous fights with Varner where, you know, staying in tight to him and letting him work the the close guard on you is really going to be trouble. So he was standing up in his guard. He was dropping punches from there, dropping elbows to the body. Um, there's a, a point where Cerrone just has a, a full-on armbar in this fight, and Henderson's like, yeah, that's cool. Uh, I think I, I made a note of somewhere in the third round where it's the only time that I've really noticed in a fight Henderson actually adjusting his toothpick during the fight. <laughs> Usually he was pretty good at, at keeping that in check, but in this fight, uh, these guys were so all over the place that even the toothpick came out of the place, so he, he had to adjust that. Uh, and then like, it carries through all the way to the fight you get into rounds four and five and suddenly donald cerrone who couldn't defend a takedown to save his life 
has got like Aldo's takedown defense and he's just like shucking Henderson off of these deep double legs. And I, I don't know how he managed to do it, but he really takes over the fight late. The fifth round, he looks like he's using Henderson's arm as like a, a lever to try and just like rip it off in some of these crazy uh, omoplata attempts that he's got. Uh, and then eventually Henderson just survives it all and we go to a decision. And this one, I, I, I couldn't shit on this decision like the uh, Korean Zombie Garcia decision because this one you can really see it going either way. Henderson ends up getting the decision. He becomes the WC interim lightweight champion because they were uh, waiting for Jamie Varner to get over his uh, his eye issue at the time and went on to to quite the run himself in terms of what he did for the rest of his WEC tenure and then obviously over in the UFC as well. So Don Cerrone, Ben Henderson won WEC 43. Man, that's a great fight. That's toward the top of my list here as well uh, because Ben Henderson, I think he had off the top of my head a couple fights, two or three before this, but even though I was watching the WEC at this time, Brad, I wasn't aware of Ben Henderson. Like He, he slipped through my radar. Um, mm-hmm. So this was my introduction to ben, Benson Henderson, my introduction to certain things. Like I like the shouts to like the body ground and pound. But uh, yes. what was crazy was not that Benson Henderson slipped my radar, but it was because he actually had a lot of fun finishes. Uh, in fact, which is people don't realize, Benson Henderson, this was only the second time in his entire career that he goes to decision. All but one of his fights were all by finish uh, before this. So it was, it was, it, it was a, a trip. And if, you don't give Benson Henderson enough credit. I know I've been guilty of that. I just don't think he gets enough credit in general um, for what yeah. you can give him credit for. Uh, from stuff funny stuff like the toothpick, great shout, Brad. To <laughs> to his overall career, like go back and watch some of these early fights, man. You see why Benson Henderson um, has the respect and the hardcore fans that he does have uh, for sure. Uh, you can't you, you can't discredit uh, Benson for this chapter of his career at all. No, and back in this day, he was just a, a wild man. Like yep. like I said about sacrificing position and really going for it, uh, he would do that at, at all costs. Um, so it made his fun, fights really fun. It opened him up and, and uh, gave his opponents something to work with as well, which made his fights even more fun. And he had that finishing ability that, you know, as he consistently fought the, the top guys in the world kind of waned. Um, but I still think that even though he, he went to a bunch of decisions as his career started to, to progress, he was still in generally entertaining fights, uh, but nothing towards this, the, the WEC peak uh, in terms of like from the, the 40s into the, the end of the WEC. That was just a, a wild ride. Yeah, Benson Henderson has a weird style that although it's different than John Fitch's, I find myself oddly sympathetic toward both their styles for the same reason why people shit on him because <clears throat> don't get me wrong like, as a as a grappler as a martial artist of course i will in your head you want to be the athletic dude who finishes everybody but <laughs> I, i'm obviously not athletic and my finishing abilities were not were not were not great um we're talking about fights here um but uh, but no but like so i but i found myself like to the john fitch reference i found myself doing a lot of positional dominance and, and, and having a lot of grinding nature to my game. So I find myself having a hard time hating on John Fitch and jumping on that train as far as yeah. that goes. And for Benson Henderson, when you, you know, bringing back to this fight, you almost wonder when you look back at it, was like, well, is this where he gets a taste for the close fights? Because there, you can argue with Benson Henderson that he allowed fights to get closer. Whether you think he should have won some splits or not, there's that argument too. 
But there's also this other overall argument, overarching argument, that perhaps he let fights go a little too closer than they needed to because this is a very talented and well-rounded guy through almost all iterations of his career. And, of course, one of the fun parts of this is watching him get out of all of Donald Cerrone's submissions. But, and again, not trying to relate to myself to a pro fighter by any meaningful uh, way, but the context here, um, there is a certain high when you reverse or get out of bad positions or out of submissions. And I would almost, uh, not to sound like Gene LaBelle, I get off on choking people out, but I would almost get off on that. Like when I, when I, when I was re- re- revisiting my role sessions, even if I got a submission, I wasn't revisiting the submission or making the guy tap. I was like, I was thinking back to like, that was so awesome when I got out of that bad position because that was more rewarding. And that's fine. It is more rewarding. But if you're in a prize fight, you don't want to get into those positions when you don't have to. And I almost yeah. feel like Benson Henderson almost develops this bad habit, consciously or not. As he, you know, goes on into the WEC to this decision slash split decision king. Yeah, and you know, you can almost see it. Like, how far can I take this before somebody can actually get me? Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and I don't have near the uh, the grappling pedigree or or time put into the grappling that you do. But one of my favorite things about grappling is like all right, try and submit me. Like, yeah. see if you can try and, and just like yep. seeing people get frustrated as they can't do it. And they're just like, dude, like what the fuck are you made of? Like, how, how did you stretch like that? How did you not go out from that? It's, uh, you can definitely see, uh, you know, as somebody who's experienced that on a very, very minor level, how doing that to uh, a top flight professional fighter might be able to to get in their head a little bit, and you you can take some joy out of that. Well, which is why, to add on to that point and cap it off, which is why, uh, not stepping on anything, because this is UFC, by the time Benson Henderson gets to the UFC, and he's defending his title against one Nate Diaz, it's just extra, extra rewarding when... Benson Henderson tries to do his Van Damme impression by going into a full split to avoid the leg lock, and then Diaz's counter is just flipping him off, forcing the broadcast to go off air momentarily on Fox, which is great. That's a great show. I think awesome. that's like only like their fifth show. I think that's like Fox Five or something. Like it's like they're they're, they're yep. still new to the Fox relationship, and they're they're rolling the dice on throwing Nate Diaz out there. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, that, that's a. That's a that, that that's a good pick, sir. That's a really good pick. Okay, my number two, obviously, I already gave, which was Condit Mitsumura. So I guess we'll just I'll launch us into our number one, shall we? And maybe we're on the same number one here. But we were talking a lot again about portending a lot about Asian fighters in certain stylistic matchups, and I think this one checks both boxes. This is WEC thirty four, which is another good card, but not the the, the third one. I'm going to recommend to you folks. I'll do that at the end. But this was uh, for the Bantamweight title. This was Miguel Torres versus Yoshiro Maeda, who, again, I I had such high hopes for this guy after this fight, but kind of the point we just talked about. A lot of these guys topped out in the WEC. This was Maeda's top in a loss. Uh, loses by third round doctor stoppage, and this is is this how good the fights are, by the way? Because there are some controversial, like you mentioned, Varner uh, Varner Cerrone. Uh, this fight, there are stoppages where, like, if a fight ends controversially or by doctor stoppage, it's immediately controversial, even by today's standards in the UFC fights. And it'll it'll take even like Cerrone, fucking Ferguson, like great fights. People will be like, the fight sucks now because it ended controversially. <laughs> like the WEC fights were so good that controversial endings are on my fucking top five list. You know what I'm saying? Yep, exactly. Uh, it, it, you're exactly right. This fight. I'm sure you'll get into it in a little more detail. Um, 
it's not my uh, we talked a little bit just very briefly before the show and i was like there's a couple that i think you're gonna have that i left off uh this was one of them that that i left off but round two of this fight is oh. quite possibly my favorite mma round of all time it's just absolutely wild. Absolutely. And, and Frank Mir, you know, signs off with you. And it's one of those things where you, I'm watching in hindsight and you for, you totally forgive him uh, for being alive in the moment. There's always recency bias. But you're like, no, that's not recency bias. How often do you get two guys going for a double toehold on each other <laughs> in a 50-50 committed entanglement? And like Frank Mir said, it's, it's, like the, it's a perfect metaphor for the fight, this fight, how it was yep. going. Because... I don't know what happened, Brad, but like I don't know what kind of Twitter what Twitter trash talk wasn't a big thing like it is today back in 2008 or 9 or whenever this fight's going down. But like they hated some, each other. Yeah, these guys like they hated it, each other. In the pre-fight package I couldn't find it, but like uh Maeda through the translation he's speaking in Japanese, right? And he essentially says the equivalent like I plan on taking Miguel Torres' head off and ripping out his soul. And then Miguel Torres, like, which, by the way, Miguel Torres, he says, like, some, some like, kind of, like, very anti-Japanese stuff. Not very anti. I'm not offended. I don't give a shit, by the way. I'm part Japanese. <laughs> I'm not offended, by the way. But, like, when before he fights Mitsugaki as well, he's just, I don't like these fucking Japanese fighters coming over here thinking they're better than us. And I'm like, wait a minute. Japanese fighters are, like, the least cockiest fighters ever. Like, it was so great. Which, by the way, I'm going to pass the ball to you here real quick. I didn't realize this, but... Dude, does Miguel Torres from the composure, his fight style to what he says in interviews, I didn't realize how much of a Tony Ferguson vibe does that, that fucking dude had, right? Holy shit. Yep. And even like his fight style isn't quite as off the wall and no. training style isn't quite as off no, the wall as no, Ferguson. Yeah, sure. But he's still pretty out there, especially given the time that these fights were taking place in terms of just how wild he would get. But then you would see performances like the next one after this that he had against uh, Manny Tapia, where he's like working behind a jab a lot yeah. and just sort of like blinds Tapia on one side and, and really just dominates that fight. So this was a guy who, like like a few MMA fighters, a little bit unstable, I think, uh, yeah. but it worked for him. It definitely worked for him. And Maeda brought the best out of him, I think. I mean, and this also for people who aren't aware, I mean, this is... You know, we, we grew up uh, with, uh, as far as within MMA with 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 certain lore and whatnot. But people that aren't aware, like um, Miguel Torres was like what they were trying to build Hen and Burrell as and was one of the last M bandweight MMA champions who had like a 30-fight undefeated run or something along those lines. I think, what did he get, like 33 or 35 fights in a row? Not a lot were accounted for because they are like open-weight fights at bars and shit, like Miguel <laughs> Torres were talking about. And he was ranked highly, and again, more deservedly so, not the whole Dana White just trying to get behind the, listen, this guy's fucking great. He washes his yeah. clothes in a sink. You never heard of him, but I promise. <laughs> you know, no, 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 no. Like, Miguel Torres was like, regardless of whether what you thought of him or whatever, like, he... He was deserving of that pound for pound. He was one of the guys because he was a lighter weight fighter that was forcing that pound for pound talk, along with, of course, like the BJ Pens yes. of the world as far as an MMA. Yeah. And this was right around the time where, obviously, Uriah Faber was at the the height of his abilities as well. He headlined this card, in fact. In you know, I I hate to make this comparison, but it's kind of like him versus Pulver is kind of like the WEC's tough one moment where it had the most eyeballs on it and two guys really just delivered. Yeah. Obviously, the, the fight is completely different in the sense of, of how it went down and the, the guys involved. Um, but 
I saw reasonable arguments at this time for people that had Miguel Torres rated higher than Uriah Faber in terms of a, a pound for pound ranking and things like that. Like that's the the level that we're talking about right now. And again, I don't want to step on potential uh, submissions for top five fights that never happened like this was something that was talked about as a fantasy fight which was crazy because Faber would eventually go to 135 even while the WEC was still around but of course yeah. um, Miguel Torres took a pretty hard fall after the vaunted run that we just kind of built up so we never really yeah. s- that, that that talk kind of uh, died as hard as it, as, it, as it came so to speak yeah yeah if uh, I feel like after the after he lost his title to Bulls, if he managed mm-hmm. to beat Benavidez mm-hmm. instead of uh, losing that fight, I think that would have been the absolute perfect time to to make that Faber-Torres fight. But one of those things where just the, the stars did not align. Yeah, even some of those bounce-back wins, like I think it might have been Charlie Valencia. I didn't go back to watch these ones, but I remember whether it was the UFC like against Benuelos or Vin Valencia. Like, they didn't feel like the inspiring. Like I'm sure they probably tried to do the, he's back, you know, when the commentators <laughs> try, to, try to really like immediately reinstill that narrative once the, once the fighter gets the win. Like, I'm yeah. sure they tried to do that, but I just, I just remember, and again, I didn't rewatch this, but as, even as a Miguel Torres fan, as a fighter, I was like, I don't, I don't know if he's coming back. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you sort of saw it. Um, I I think that I might be in the minority here, but I think that the DJ decision. Uh, I think Miguel Torres did some phenomenal work off. I know, yes. I'm not sure how closely you remember that fight, yeah, but I think no, he did yeah. phenomenal work off his back. And I actually thought he deserved that decision. But we were at a, a time in MMA where if you're on the bottom, you're you're not winning the fight. And it was ironic because so. well, didn't that fight go down in Japan? And it's like under Japanese rule sets, he probably would have won much more clear. <laughs> yeah, that was the uh, the the rampage uh, Bader. Hamill card. Or Hamill? Uh, yeah, so that one was in in Vegas. Oh, um, it was Vegas. Okay, all right. Yeah, but it's, yeah, and, and I don't know. I Miguel Torres, he he had a, he was like a supernova. Like his rise, obviously to get there, it it took a lot. He was at like like you said thirty something and one. I know he had one loss somewhere in the the middle of his early career, um, but then he had this like five fight stretch in the U, in the WEC where it was just phenomenal fight after phenomenal fight finishing dudes um you know finishing chase bb for the title yep. um great fights with maeda which like i've stepped all over this for you sorry no you're good you're good <laughs> um, uh, and then just like a couple other great defenses uh, tapia and, and mizugaki um and then it was just sort of it was over um, you know, he let Brian Bowles dribble his head off the canvas a little bit and uh, never quite got back to that level. And, you know, it's uh, one of the, the shorter but really, really high-level runs in MMA. Yeah, when I wrote, started writing this list and compiling it, you know, we both talked about starting our, our list about a, a week or so out. And this was the first fight I wrote, so it kind of makes sense that it was number one. But, but yeah, man, uh, just the last last note on it, I guess, as far as... Um, uh, as far as this fight or Miguel Torres goes, uh, I'm a I'm a I've always been a big fan. Uh, I've never changed that as far as like Frank Mir's commentary style from watching these live to even going back. And of course, we can always pick pick on stuff. And there's a lot of like really bad flubs that all commentators make. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm not trying to harp on that. But man, I forgot how biased Mir was toward Miguel he Torres. He loved like, Miguel Torres. That was oh. the MMA's greatest love affair was Frank Mir and Miguel Torres. It <laughs> yes. was. 
like people used to say the same thing about Faber in his commentary towards Faber, yes. but against uh, with Torres, it was just another level. Well, That's a great call. I don't want to stop in case it's your number one, but there is a fight, uh, not this fight of Miguel Torres, and it's great because Todd Harris for like literally the whole the whole time is trying to do the role of a play by play guy where you're, you're you're telling the story, you're not trying to lie about what the viewers are seeing. But you are trying to curate the narrative as, as far as be fair. So if you notice, whether it's you or the color commentator talking too much about one guy, like, you know, Rogan will get stuck on a narrative, not coming at Rogan, just saying he'll get stuck on his narrative. And you'll see Anik, who's so great at subtly, like, trying to re-steer it and balance it out. You see Todd Harris trying to do that uh, every time for Miguel Torres fights for Mir, and he's like... Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think even Miguel would admit this, Mir, that he's doing... Yeah, yeah, no, 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 but I still give the round to Miguel. Like, it was great. I just love watching Todd Harris repeatedly pitch... Pitch and he like he was giving he was doing Mir a favor yep. like he was giving him an out to rebound tossing up those shots. Mir was balls, having yeah. none of these. Like, Fuck that! <laughs> this is Torres's fight. We can talk about something else <laughs> when it's not Miguel Torres fighting. Like yeah. get out of here, Todd Harris. What are you doing? Go hang out with Craig Hummer. Yeah, yeah. Go hang out with Craig Hummer at the, at the California. California Pizza Kitchen, where the fuck he's hanging out at. I don't know why I'm coming at poor Greg Hummer. Guy. I have nothing against him, by the way, but that is the image I get. What was your number one, sir, before we get off track here? <laughs> um, I, I feel like I, I really wanted to have Torres and Maeda as, as my number one. And this is a stoppage where I, I don't even think it's something that's controversial because, like, Maeda's orbital was blown up at that point. Yeah. Like, that was a good stoppage. I have I have no problem with that. Um, but I feel like we would kind of get crucified by our listeners if one of us didn't have this fight on our lists. And it's the final fight in WC history. Mm-hmm. And, and what better way can you go out than Anthony Pettis, Ben Henderson, Showtime kick in the last 75 seconds of the fight of what was a phenomenal fight. Uh, I, I always love anytime you can get a fight where the best stuff happens in the championship rounds and the fourth and fifth round in this fight, like there were other, obviously other high points. The entire fight is phenomenal, but the fourth and fifth round are, are just absolutely bonkers. Like these guys knew what was at stake. It was UFC title shot was on the line other than the the pay-per-view, this was the biggest platform that the WC ever had because a lot of UFC fans really didn't come over and start watching the WEC. And then they heard, oh, this is going to get rolled into the UFC. I should probably yeah. put, oh, like, yeah. put my eyes on this. So I don't know what the, the ratings numbers were for this, but it was definitely a, a huge platform for these fighters. And all these guys on this card top to bottom it's it's another one of those great ones that that people need to go back and watch but it seemed like they had that in mind like oh this is this is to go to the ufc this is like for real for real like we're already the best fighters in the world we know that but it's just a a completely different stage in terms of what you can get to and these guys gave everything they had for 25 minutes and you you get one of the most iconic moments like i can only think of what would happen if something like the showtime kick took place in 2020 with the way social media is now 
just like I I can't imagine everyone on the planet would see that. Like it had it would a, just it, be crazy. It had a viral effect then, and uh, if you don't mind me just cutting in for a second here, we'll, oh, we'll definitely here. go back yeah. and forth. But it this was. If you're accusing me of leaving this off my list to be hipster, you are correct. You are halfway correct. <laughs> However, as I want to make a note, there's a bunch of honorable mentions, and we'll knock out all of ours before we get out of here, folks. But uh, for the truncated versions that I do in MMA Junkie, uh, the truncated versions uh, for this top five that I do called the Fight Vault, I include two honorable mentions. So when I do my one through five, I'll write a big H on two. So those two honorable mentions will stand out above the rest for what it's worth. And this fight has an H next to it. As well as <laughs> Nate Diaz versus Hermes Franco's Hermes Franco, which we'll talk about later, but um, but nice. but but th- th- this is one of them, and it's because again, first of all, like the whole fight's good, which is crazy. Like it's not even one of those fights where like, you know, I love Lawler Condit, and it's it's on my top five list, I think, for top five welterweight wars. So in no way am I shitting on it. However, uh, the contrarian argument, and not even the contrarian argument, I'm just saying I could see that side of the argument where you could be like, you know what. Outside of a moment in round three, round one, and of course legendary round five, the middle was pretty much a low. Or you can make the you can't make that argument here. And not only that, it's so common to say, Brad, oh, this fight went everywhere. These guys show all their skills, or this fight has everything. <laughs> like this fight literally has everything. Like you even yep. get Anthony Pettis offensive wrestling, which by the way, watching Ben Benson Henderson and Anthony Pettis and watching Jamie Varner versus Donald Cerrone too reminded me of that that weird series where both these like lightweights all of a sudden learned how to wrestle at the end of their WEC career, <laughs> fucking forgot all about it when they got into the UFC, and then had to yep. re remind themselves of it, maybe in Pettis' case not so much later in their career. But this is even funny? Yeah, 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 there is. Yeah, yep, yep. He used yeah. it once. <laughs> yeah, he used it once to get that get, get himself back on track, right? But uh, but no, it, and, and and before I, I bounce it back to you, it does of course culminate with the, you know a minute left, um, the Showtime kick right off the cage. Like this is how big it was. It, it, like I agree with Brad that it, it it's almost an injustice because how how much bigger it would be now. But this is how big it was then, almost ten years ago. It feels like right. Um, I was still. Uh, I'm at the I'm on the amateur team on a regular basis training with pros and amateurs at Extreme Couture at this time. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that because after this fight, Brad, everybody in the gym tried holy it. Fuck, like okay, in the beginning of practice, we we got to run our laps right around around the mats, right? <laughs> and for the whole fucking year, at least one asshole, it's like minus five hundred, is gonna try. Hey, what's going to do the showtime kick on this lap? And it was fucking like okay, mark it off your list. Check check it off your bingo list, like ever for yep. a whole fucking. Year, I was getting sick bingo, yeah. of the Showtime kick. Like people would be trying to cute and doing it in sessions, which would be in their asses kicked. Like it was great. Oh, it was great. Um, but yeah, this this also watching this fight again gave me a little flashback to something else. I think it happened on this card as well. Um, but there's a little segment where um, Pettis is like backpacking Henderson, uh, and then he drops down. Uh, and gets his feet on the ground real quick and goes for a head kick while he's got still got the uh, the back control and it just goes back to um, one of the things that happened earlier on this very card uh, where Donald Cerrone 
catches Chris Hordesky as he's like running away yes. with the the high kick and drops them. And one of the greatest MMA knockouts of all time, which is uh, Eve Edwards and Josh Thompson with the like running oh, away yeah. head kick. And I was just like, oh man, if he pulled that off in this fight as well, it would just the the head kick from that position just is something incredible to see. Dude, Hordesky versus Cerrone was a good fight uh, for sure. But wasn't yeah. it wasn't it Ninja Kawani that hit the uh, running away head kick oh, on Hordesky? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, it was still man. a great fight. It ended in triangle choke this one though because i yeah I, <laughs> no the only way i know, know that is i, I just, I just, that, I just yeah. watched that one but no it's funny we, we, you forget a lot about to your point though you forget a lot about this card right because it has that kick but the things i wrote down in my notes specifically is Hen and burrell makes his debut we talked about Hen and burrell uh coming <laughs> later as far as a uh you know 30 some odd bantamweight champion run uh but you also get yuri alcantara knocking out ricardo lamas and again, we're talking about, remember we talked about the beginning of the show, Brad, about your seven degrees of separation, why WEC is so useful? You have a bantamweight knocking out a guy, uh, a featherweight at lightweight, right? But Lamas, yeah. <laughs> a little bit before this, he beats, uh, he unanimous decision, he doesn't knock him out, but he unanimous decisions James Krause at lightweight, who is now a welterweight, that recently beat a middleweight and competed at middleweight. <laughs> so like within three fighters, you just went from bantamweight to UFC middleweight, uh, over a span of a decade, that's how much ground you cover with this WEC crop. That was a brutal knockout. It was, too. A, it, like, was a, it was a brutal knockout, hey, but not as brutal as one of my favorite forgotten KOs, which was Ken Stone getting deadened by a slam by Eddie Wineland. <laughs> one of the best slam uh, KOs in MMA. Yeah, that one. One of the best. Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. And Wineland's real. He's real vicious about it too. He he gets in there and gets his frames up and just tries to drive Stone through the mat. It's it's a nasty one. Yeah, you're right. You see you uh, you see that exact moment where he installs his frames and goes down. And it's like a flyweight getting a knockout at that time because that was like our flyweight division at the time, folks. Flyweight wasn't a prominent weight class. Yep. I don't even know how big the Lamore uh, shows in Tachi Palace were at this time. Uh, where guys like, you know... I was uh, watching them. My, yeah, right, right. I know right. that doesn't count for anything. Right, right. Like, where guys like Michael McDonald came up, or Ian McCall was making his uh, heyday as far as 125 goes. But, but yeah, the, the, there was a lot on that last WEC card. That's a that's a great pick. And speaking of flyweights, and back to your number one pick, I mean, this is before the flyweight era of fights, but it's got about as many back takes as a Juicy A4 Amiga fight folks like <laughs> yeah they can't hold it quite as well as no. uh, as juicy but uh not too many people can hold on to back control as well as that guy so <laughs> absolutely absolutely all right that 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 rounds out um our lists uh i'm gonna pull up the listener lists here but while i'm doing that brad you know i gave my like my, my, my two top honorable mentions i know you have a bunch but like if you what were two that were like so close to making your list that we didn't talk about yet? Ooh, the ones that were that close. Yeah, I think this one has more of a, a personal touch for me, just because of like the time period and how difficult it was to see this fight. And that's uh, Donald Cerrone and Rob McCullough at WEC thirty six. Great one. Um, that fight was, I heard about it on message boards and people were, that were there and saw the fight or heard about the fight from somebody that was there and saw the fight would talk about it. But this is before the days of Facebook prelims and definitely in the WEC, you didn't get to see the prelims unless there was a bunch of finishes and they had a, a break in the broadcast. This fight ended up going to decision. 
But I think in the first round, these guys drop each other like five times. Yes. Uh, that that first round was like round of the year for sure. And once I eventually saw this fight, it came out on the Best of WEC DVD for that year. I had to wait like that long to, to see it. It absolutely lived up to the hype. And that one just because of that hunt to, to find it and uh, finally getting that payoff at the end. That one was one of my honorable mentions for sure. Great fight. Uh, and then, Can I jump in on that fight real quick before you go to the, the, the next one as you narrow your second one down? I'm glad you mentioned that one too. That one has a special place in my heart um, because it's uh, – I'm pretty sure I, w- I actually did watch it live. Um, but if not – I watched it the very next day because the very next day, uh, my striking coach, Joey Varner, no relationship to Jamie Varner. Um, he was one of the guys that may or may not have concussed Griffin before that Anderson Silva fight. He was one of the striking coaches at Extreme Couture. I think he only had like a two or three and pro record, but he, he's a matchmaking. He's like worn every hat. And uh, he was a big, he was a, a, a mainly a striker, a lot of styles, came from California uh, as well. So he was familiar with all those guys. Of course, he was more from NorCal, and McCullough, I believe, was like that OC SoCal scene. But he yep, was tight he was with, with Rob, with with Rob McCullough, and we essentially had like a Gracie breakdown of that fight after, and not just the day after, but going forward because it was such a great example as far as uh, kickboxing and guards and MMA. Because again, you don't have defense isn't really a big theme today. You could argue, depending on who you're asking, especially if you're asking someone from the boxing field. But especially back then, mm-hmm. defense isn't a big thing. And the commentary is doing a pretty good job of pointing out, like, Stroni's old habits where he's kind of, like, swinging. He still has his head bobbing, <laughs> his weird rhythm, but his arms are down here when he's doing it. Whereas yep. Razor Rob, he's doing both a shell and head movement. Now, of course, as Razor Rob gets rocked and tired, that head movement starts going away. And you <laughs> the see... The shell starts dropping down a little bit. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and we essentially were just doing um, hand, hand and guard drills. So that I had this fight fucking drilled into my head. So, nice. and, and it was just a great fight too. Kind of like what you said, like Rob McCullough is showing the blueprint. Like it looks like every Donald Cerrone fight he has, like Eddie Alvarez or, uh, to, uh, even more recent, what was that guy? Alexander Hernandez, where I always say this Cerrone's check knee, which wasn't as big. He only actually uses it a couple times in this fight and he finds it's really successful. You could maybe say this is where he starts seeing the turning point. But my uh, litmus test is, like, some people will say if, if a guy is outside of the top five, Cerrone beats him. If he's inside of the top five, he loses. And that's, if you look at the record, that's a pretty fair statement. My stereotypical Cerrone judgment is if you were 5'9 or under, you're getting eat the fuck up by his striking arsenal, particularly his check knees. <laughs> and uh, we see that because even if you were of commensurate striking level, or arguably, especially at this time, a better striker is in Rob McCullough, right? Um and, and again, depending on what version of Rob McCullough you got, because Rob McCullough was kind of a hot and cold fighter. But uh, even then, even if you were, let's just say, a little better than Cerrone, if you were underneath 5'9", you have to take Cerrone out fucking quick. Otherwise, once he got your rhythm, he was going to eat you up. And even though he doesn't have his check knee, you see that kind of hold true at this fight. So that's why I like that you brought up the Hordesky fight and the Rob McCullough fight, because it shows like this archetype that held true uh, throughout Cerrone's career for the most part. So the other one I'm going to go with isn't because it's uh, necessarily a great fight. Okay. Uh, I think this one is a great finish, but it's more about the the fighter. And we've gone through an entire episode 
about WEC. And we've mentioned pretty much everybody. We've mentioned Faber. We've talked about Torres. We've talked about all of the, the big names, but we have not talked not even once about Jose Aldo. I know. What a crime. What a crime. <laughs> so my other honorable mention, I didn't even have this written down as one of them before, is his fight. I want to say I don't have it like right in front of me right now. I, I want to say it's WEC 38. Um where, you know, we're talking about Nice, Rolando Perez, they're getting a nice little striking battle. Perez is actually hanging with him pretty well on, on the feet. Um, but he reaches a little too far with a jab. And Aldo just lightning quick with a knee, brings it up, checks Perez's chin, finishes him with a couple quick shots on the ground. And I think, I think this is the first time that Aldo goes out and goes crowd surfing after this win yes, too. Yes, yes, that's one of my favorite. <laughs> I didn't go back to watch this one, but this was a moment that I wanted to go back and rewatch. It didn't make the top of my list because there was so much to rewatch. A and B, yeah. I already knew it wasn't going to be so much of a fight as with Jose Aldo's WEC career. Um, yes. Jose Aldo's WEC career is filled with like, if I had top five moments, we might see two Jose Aldo. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like standings for this. Yep. So, in my defense, but you're right. It, it feels like blasphemy that we didn't talk about Jose Aldo up until this there. point, right? I had to get him in there. <laughs> no, that, that's, a, that's a great shout. Um, before we hog up the, sh- the, the, the spotlight on the way out of here, let's go to the uh, Twitter submissions here. Uh, Benny Abs at Benjamin Abrigo on Twitter. Beyond some of the obvious ones, I love Condit Mira. Great pick. Uh, obviously, we covered that one. Um Dan, at best fight picks. Obviously, Jung versus Garcia, uh, which we talked about. Great pick. But an underrated one-round fight. I love Cerrone versus Kraus. Throw in Brian Bowles versus Miguel Torres, too. Okay. That was good. I, I like the James Kraus fight. You yeah. know what was crazy? I couldn't find it. I could have swore it was this fight. But when I recently... It was probably against the Southpaw because when I recently went back to watch all of Cerrone... Not all of Cerrone's, but specific Cerrone fights for, for McGregor, I probably just went back to watch the Southpaw fights. But yeah. I was surprised because, you know, we always talk about the uh, iteration of the Brandon Gibson and Cerrone started to get improvements when he went to welterweight and his hands got better and look what he did to Rick Story and that level-changing combo. He hits that exact same combo back in the <laughs> WEC days against somebody and I swore it was James Krause, but it might be somebody else. Maybe it's in his early UFC fights. Hit me up at Dan Tom MMA if you can think of that one. But yeah, Krause versus Cerrone is a good fight though. Yes, yeah. Um, Krause, uh, he made a good account of himself and... His WEC, because he was just brought in as a guy for Cerrone to beat, really. And he ended up uh, making a good account of himself, for sure. Uh, absolutely. Aaron Bronstetter, a friend of the show, at Aaron Bronstetter on Twitter. And while the Showtime kick is in the highlight uh, that is always shown, Aldo's fight with Cub Swanson is almost equally highlight-worthy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a real quick one. That's, uh, you know, back to... The more recent example, obviously, is uh, Jorge Masvidal and, and Ben Askren. Um, and that was a, a little more out than Aldo put Cub Swanson. But yes. the the double knee, the oh. fact that he and he cut him above and below the eye. Oh, and, yeah. oh, and Swanson just, he was obviously hurt. But I, I think after that, he was like, yeah, I don't want any part of this. This is that, That's good. Um. Dude, between that and then I think Swanson, wasn't he the one that, that got, like, the facial fracture from, like, taking a knee from Gallard before Gallard was, like, kicked out of Jackson Wink or something? Like, knees and Cub Swanson, like, that middle, it really set back that middle part of his career. 
before yeah. he really got back into like more cons- more consistently winning, I should say, in action fights. But uh, while we're on that really quick, that is the third card that I keep teasing since he mentioned it. Uh, Aldo versus Cub Swanson happened on WEC 41. If you're asking me, go to my head, top top three. Because you got, let me just read top to bottom. Mike Brown versus Uriah Faber 2, which is an underrated fight. One of my favorites. Underrated fight. Uh, then hands got, fight? Yep. Where, where uh, Faber breaks his hands. Aldo versus Swanson in the co-main event. Cerrone <laughs> versus Kraus on that same card that we just talked about. Uh, Josh Grips, Grisby gets on the scene for Jen, versus Jens Pulver, another uh, another uh, 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 legal offshoot. If you want to follow that story, uh, warning. <laughs> yeah. Um, Manny Gambirian uh, beats John. I don't, that's kind of a not, not too memorable. So is the uh, even though it's a finish, Rafael Rebello over Kyle Dietz. Anthony Pettis chokes out Mike Campbell. Antonio Banuelos, of course, that amazing split decision fight against Scott Jorgensen. I believe that was our first one uh, or the second one. Um, that Frank, was the first, the first one. First one? Okay, first one. Yeah. Uh, Frank Gomez de- uh, defeats Noah Thomas via arm triangle and uh, Seth Dukin a uh, flying triangle choke against Rolando Perez. Um, <laughs> so, like, this, the, the, you know, as far as I think there's only one decision in the whole card. I mean, top yep. to bottom, that's a that's a, that's a a great WEC card there. Yeah, and, you know, in terms of the Ben Walos-Jorgensen fight, I, I haven't rewatched that one recently, but I can almost guarantee you that's a, a great fight. So they're both they're <laughs> that both, one doesn't yeah, really count as a, a decision. You know, Manny Gamburians, Manny Gamburians. So <laughs> nobody, nobody fucks with their minions. Nobody. <laughs> I, that's what I remember from that, that that tough five fucking that house fight, and Nate, Nate Diaz is taking off his shirt, going what what? Like <laughs> tough five was so weird, man. And a lot of a lot of WEC people, Gabe Rudiger, you'll see his name a lot in these early WEC fights, but a lot of tough five cats. Early champ. Yep, early champ. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mark Chanier at Mark the Shark BC. Aldo versus Faber was the most w- memorable WEC fight for me. Seeing Faber's corner run in between rounds and put him back in his corner after Aldo wrecked his legs. Yikes. That <laughs> Speaking of Aldo moments, that's one for me, man. I mean, that was between round four and five. Master Tong running in there and meeting uh, Faber halfway carrying, which is technically illegal from the point he carried him. You got to let the fighter make it to his corner. But yeah. but yeah, great shout. I mean, they weren't going to stop a Faber fight in Sacramento for that, though. <laughs> no, no way, Jose. I remember those T-shirts. Yeah. Uh, an, another good mention from Dan from Be- uh, at Best Fight Pick says an, a, another good mention is Brian Bowles versus Demacio Page. They fought both in the WEC and UFC, and both fights ended at the exact same time by the exact same exactly. method. Yep, guillotine at three thirty of the first round. Great shout and great, great to be ready with that with a technical stat there, Brad. Yeah, that was crazy. That was crazy. That's insane, man. Um, and and Brian Bowles again. Uh, you know, legal, legal, legal offshoots. Go go follow at your own risk. Uh, we're we're full of that that bingo here. Um, but uh, I do like I did love the love me some Brian Bowles uh, ring entrance. Him versus Dominic Cruz almost made my list. One of my favorite Dominic Cruz fights. And it starts off because Brian Bowles is the champion. He comes in with Johnny Cash. You know, there's a man yep. coming around, taking names. And he's like this. And at the time, right, he's just really soft-spoken. Like, I'm from Georgia. I love God. And I love knocking people in the chin. Like, he just, you know, he just seemed like that dude. So you're like, all right, let's 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 see where this goes. Yep. Actually, talking about the entrances, you, uh, you reminded me of a couple great WEC entrances. And one uh, is Aldo Faber. When Aldo comes into uh, in Sacramento to run this town yep. uh, for the the pay per view, 
And then the other one is a fight that you talked about already. Um, Jorgensen Cruz 2. Or, sorry, not Jorgensen Cruz 2. Benavidez Cruz 2, where uh, Joseph Benavidez comes out to James Brown's payback. Oh, yeah. So good. Yep, yep. He He's always got good uh, good songs, Joseph Benavidez. I forget one song he came out to, but it, it, his reasoning was it was because uh, it was on the Boogie Night soundtrack, and it's not even like one of the more – it's a great soundtrack <laughs> and a memorable memorable movie, but he tried, probably choose one of the most least memorable songs uh, for Little Bill when Little Bill goes crazy the New Year's party and kills his cheating wife played by whatever that porn star's name was, and he shoots himself. Like, Joseph Benavides is like, yeah, that scene made me want to come out to that song for this fight. I'm like, what? That's why I love you, Joseph Benavides. Like, like who gets inspired for that scene? Yeah. Like, oh, that's going to be a walkout of mine. If Joseph Benavides had a list for a Dan Tom top five show, it would just be full of five hipster picks. I can guarantee it. Well, someone posed the idea. I forget who it was. I don't know if it was you or Aaron or somebody was just like, dude, you and Joseph Benavides should do like a top five movie show. And I thought the same thing because it was one of the shows we had him on for Junkie Radio, and he's got really good rapport with my co-host. Shouts to Gorgeous George and Goes. Um, yep. But I don't have as good a rapport with Joseph Benavides, so I was kind of getting to know him, right? And I'm like, I really dig this guy. I always was a fan of his fighting style, but like he threw like a Barton Fink reference. I'm like, dude, a, a, like some hipster ass '90s movie. Like Dan Tom's a fan for life. You're gonna you're gonna reference that shit. Um, but uh, real quick on the walkouts that we already mentioned, uh, I was setting it up with the old school martial arts and, and Canada coming from that like old school kickboxing scene, and. Mm-hmm. Mark Hominet pays a great respect by coming out to Final Countdown. I mean, that is so 80s, early 90s <laughs> martial arts, right? Like, yep. that, that was all of that spirit. That, that had no MMA uh, attachment to it all. That was like a shout to the old school martial arts fans. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, those guys from London, um, you know, Hominick, Kordeski, Stout, uh, all part of the, the Tompkins team, uh, I didn't really have a, a chance to interact with them a ton, but uh, every time that I have just in passing or in brief, those uh, are three entertaining guys. I'll, I'll say that, uh, you know, maybe a, a couple of them can get a little bro-y uh, <laughs> at times, but uh, you know, sure. <laughs> they're, they're good guys. You know what? I, I'll take a Canadian bro over an American bro anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, I grew up in the West coast of the United States, the heart of the brodom, but you know, yeah, there you there. go. Yeah. Uh, last last submission, official one by Aaron Bronstetter. Torres Mitsugaki, great pick, uh, which yep. which uh, we covered. Kind of that's the one where really you want to hear the Frank Mir bias going on full effect. Like <laughs> He's not giving Mitsugaki any credit on that fight. And, and I love yeah. Mitsugaki again, kind of like um, shout out to uh, a co-host who's on here a lot, Jordan Killian. Like, he had that wrestle boxer style like you talked about, Brad, but... I always quote Mitsugaki being more, one of the more heavier-handed bantamweights, even though he didn't have all the knockout finishes, is because he had heavy enough hands and such a boxing-emphasized style that you kind of felt it in the fights, not in the sense of like Francis Ngannou hitting someone, not so obvious, but you felt it in the temperature of the fight because it, he hit hard enough for his opponent to respect him, and it made his it's opponent like, respect yeah. his level, and it just <laughs> created a great chain reaction. Yep, yeah. Um, and that's where... like. You saw that a little bit in that um, the the Cage Force uh, run and, and tournament that he had, and that's what really got him into yes. the WEC. And that's where you really started to see the the power take hold a little bit. Uh, I think he had a couple of knockouts in, in Shudo sure. before he ever got to that point. Um, but he was against a, a better quality of opponent, so, sort of getting to that highest level of, of Japanese fighter at that time. And you could see it change things. Like, 
if, if it didn't affect a guy in terms of getting knocked out or getting hurt immediately, it was like, oh, like, I, I need to mind my P's and Q's against this guy or else I'm going to be sleeping. Yep, and last thing on that before I finish off Aaron's list is like, what else, another thing that reinforces this WC bias for newer fans that see the hashtag WC never die and why people are so passionate, it's like even these guys that weren't like the biggest names like Torres or George Root, for example, like you can go to their later careers, uh, toward their end of their careers in the UFC, and when these WEC guys get matched up with each other, you still get a really fun fucking fight. Yeah, Mizugaki and Root, yeah. Yep, over in Japan. Uh, but uh, he says Cerrone Varner fights. We covered those. Great, great pick, Aaron. Uh, Garcia Jung, we cover that, uh, and yeah, th- 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 thank you for that. Those were those were the listener uh, honorable honorable mentions. Um, we we talked about favor versus pulver one. That's more like my, one of my favorite promos. Uh, I love that promo that that don't blink. You know, uh, yeah, you gonna do this like somebody that does pulver? He's got the my name is Mudbeard. He's like you gonna do this like somebody just started or a veteran or whatever that thing is, and he's doing the tennis ball. <laughs> like it's it's so great that that promo. Go look it up on YouTube, folks. Yeah, I I'm not sure if that ever gets into the uh, the full card or the the edited version of the the card that's on Fight Pass, but you know that was that was a big deal at the time that fight. Um, obviously, Pulver had his run UFC lightweight champion and then left the organization, came back. You know the the Lausanne shocker. Yes. Um, nobody saw that coming at the time. Uh, and then he, people thought he was just sort of done at that point, but he comes over to WEC and chokes out Cub Swanson in, like, what, 30 seconds yeah. or, or something it's like that? Yeah, like a guillotine or something, right? Um, and then, like, yeah, let's uh, let's use the, the old man to, to put the young guy over. And everyone thought that, you know, they build it as, you know, a, a great former UFC light heavyweight or lightweight champion um, everyone thought that Faber was just going to absolutely run through him. Yes. And if you watch the fight back, like Faber clearly wins right, the fight. Right. But it is, it's one of those 50 45 fights that's like 50 45. But if Pulver landed a couple more punches in the right rounds, it could have been like 48 47. Yeah, totally. And, and you're right. Uh, even whether it's hindsight eyes or at the time, you can't argue that. Pulver didn't overperform because, again, talking oh, yeah. about the promo, I remember being almost word worried, Brad. I'm like, this promo is so good because I'm, I'm a movie guy and I would avoid trailers <laughs> because they give away too much for one. And sometimes they can get you too hyped and then you go in with a high expectation in the movie. It might not even be bad, but you you, you don't give it its justice. So I was almost worried. I'm like, dude, this fight's going to have to be good the way they're billing it. And luckily for them, Pulver overperformed. And it was a really good fight. And you even get classic stuff. Like one of the cool things was is – I, I got to rewatch these fights um, with, with, with somebody who is not uh, very familiar with MMA, but they're in a kickboxing. So, and so they have a passion and actual experience with combat sports. So it's kind of one of those rare platforms where you can find someone in the year of 2020 who knows about combat sports and is into it, but hasn't seen classic UFC fights. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, That's playing, awesome. I'm playing it for this person, and you get kind of like you, you have your favorite restaurant, Brad, or folks listening, and hopefully you're wired like you're just like, how do you think? What do you think? Yeah, what do, do you, you think, right? Like it? And yeah, you're, yeah. And, 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 and it, it's probably annoying, sure, but it also probably means you're a good person and a non-selfish person because you enjoy seeing other people get enjoyment of things mm-hmm. you enjoy, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? And uh, so it's great. So she was popping for all like, all the fights, and she put them in a bit of a different order, but she essentially had my top five at the end of it. But when we, I was watching this Fulber, uh, Favor Pulver fight, like you forget that Faber does like his classic like 
when someone's going for a signal single, not only is he balancing like BJ Penn, but he's doing the jump knee to the face. And the she e does Edwards, it. Edson Berto. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the person I'm watching was, Holy crap. Pause. Rewind that. I got to see that again. And it's just so oh. great. Right. Cause for me, it's like, Oh, I forgot about that little novelty move, but like someone who didn't yep. see that, you're like, Oh yeah, that's right. This was matrix shit for us for like that time where we were yeah. at. And that dude at that time, like, he was such an incredible athlete, like so fast and just oh. willing to do whatever it took to to get the fight or just not even get the fight where he wanted to, but just to inflict damage on his opponent. Uh, and obviously that's what ended up getting him caught and losing his title in yeah. the end uh, is just, you know, going for stuff that was a little too unorthodox. Um, but it, that ride from you know, WEC 19, where he won the title. And, you know, I'd, I'd be kind of remiss if I didn't at least mention the name Cole Escobedo. Because yes, yes. that's a dude that... Pioneered uh, that division, or the, the lighter division. Exactly. Yeah, people usually talk about pioneers for the lighter divisions as guys out of Japan. But in terms of North America, he was one of the guys who was sort of holding it down and making sure that the division had a strong foundation. So Cole Escobedo, you know, he Uriah Faber beat the shit out of him to win the title. Yes, yeah. uh, and then, you know, great fights with uh, Jeff Curran and um, Chance Farrar and uh, a bunch of really fun fights. Um, but the the run is something that, unfortunately, when people really got into the WEC, it was it was coming to the end. So they never really saw the dominant Faber as champion on top run that yeah. people that even just a, a year or two before would have really seen and appreciated. So another guy, you know, we're talking about guys who don't get the credit they deserve. And Faber, for me, is at the top of that list as well. Absolutely. And like you, the speed and athleticism, and you talk about uh, in a much different way, of course, but like Benson Henderson dancing with the devil on like, yeah. you know, almost like, like like Faber would dart in and out like a karate fighter, not like a karate mm-hmm. fighter, did complete different style. But as far as like in the sense that he was darting in and out from a basic yes. sense, relying on his speed. And he almost yeah. had this like Sonic the Hedgehog thing where whether he was going in and out, whether it was successful, he almost had this <laughs> like after, you know, where you'd stop and go like he, he knew he was faster. He's like, you saw that. Yeah, you saw how fast I was. Come at me, bitch. I'm going to change level or hit you with the right hand. Yep. What am I going to do? I'm going to dart. And like you said, it, yeah. it caught up with him in the Mike Brown fight. But Faber really captured that imagination because like WEC was not something known in casual audiences. But Faber was one of – I don't know about your experience, Brad, Brad, but for me, like I had a boss, this guy who I, I referenced on another show. He, he, he reminded me of the main character of Tiger King. Uh, this roofer guy I work for, and he was crazy, and he was like, crazy list. But one of the only MMA fighters he knew of, for whatever reason, was Uriah Faber. He's like, oh, how's that Faber, man? How's he doing? And uh, I remember when Mike Brown lost, like, he couldn't believe it. He's like, what? Faber lost? And even though he was the most casual of casuals, and at this time, I'm, I'm riding high. I'm considering myself a hardcore. But I was like, I get it. I get that. Yeah. That's, the react- that's the same reaction as a hardcore I had, too. I was like, holy shit. And that's why... That fight and obviously the subsequent rematch with its own inner narratives and layers was was much better than than maybe on paper it reads. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And you know, you were just talking about Faber and his, his quickness. Uh, just something that I pulled when I was uh, watching Faber Pulver recently. It, it's funny because he's he's always got like the hands down, sort of loose, like jumpy style, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. But 
the way that he really started to put that together into using that right hand in different ways in from the same setup was pretty incredible and, and in that pulver fight you see a great yes. example of it where from the same spot he's throwing his overhand right which is obviously like that that's his number one punch but he's also using it to set up the exact same uh, start for an upper right uppercut and straight right and he was landing on pulver at will in the, that first round um using all three of those and it was really sort of entertaining to watch and and see him start to evolve his striking because before that he was overhand right scramble gonna yeah. get your back or get a guillotine on you yeah and exactly. he was just able to do it um but then he, you really started to see the evolution and it's just kind of a shame that his title run and, and run at the top well his run at the top didn't really end for like a decade yeah after that yeah um, that man that dude hold on forever but it was really fun to see that evolution in his game absolutely well we got roughly five or so minutes left i got about under two handfuls left of honorable mentions i'm not sure how many of you got so let me just give uh yeah a, a, at least a couple that almost made the list um i said the official honorable mention is, is probably going to be nate diaz versus hermes franca at wc24 i didn't watch this fight live but Tough Five was one of the t t tough seasons I watched, obviously being a BJ Penn fan. And there, through there, I became a Nate Diaz fan, right? Because before, I was just like, oh, the Diaz brothers are cocky. Because all I knew was, like, Nick, Nick Diaz fighting Sean Shirk, right? Like, I didn't become, like, the full-fledged Nick Diaz fan. Um, it, it wasn't until, not even Strikeforce, Elite XC, where I start really getting on the Nick Diaz um, bandwagon, right? Obviously, that pride fight he had with Gomi at 33 was great. But, but yeah, I'm like, I've become this Nate Diaz fan, so I want to go back and watch his older fights. And I knew, again, speaking of Sean Shirk, I knew who Hermes Franco was from following the lightweight title. Hermes Franco, folks, one of the first, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys who could bang and hit heavy on the feet, as well as one of the first, like, Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys who went and migrated up um, to the States um, as well. So he got, you know, a lot of being in Florida, especially a lot of cross-training opportunities, uh, and was one of those first wave of Brazilians migrating to America and just trying to supplant himself in North American scenes. Of course, another fun, uh, <laughs> fun in air quotes, uh, legal offshoot that guy got into to play <laughs> legal offshoot bingo for the WEC. <laughs> um, yeah. but, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that that's a guy that because of when he came up, I don't think that he really got the, the opportunities and, and really the shine that he should have uh, in MMA as a whole. Because he was in, he was a lightweight in like the wasteland that was like the UFC sort of forties yeah. territory. Oh yeah, where they yep. had some great lightweights uh, like Eve Edwards oh. mentioned earlier, Josh Thompson uh, and Hermes Franca. They had like those three guys had great great fights. You had to get to Hermes throw... Franca to get to that title, man. Back then, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that was like really early in his MMA career. Uh, and then obviously, you know, a couple losses and uh, went away, came back to the, the UFC and, you know, the uh, the Shirk fight wasn't his greatest performance by any mean. But, you know, that that Nate Diaz fight was on his run up to the title. And, yeah, that's a that's a great call. And uh, the rest of these, I can pretty much mention the fight, and there's really nothing else to expand upon. So I'll just <laughs> say uh, 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 this one that, that almost made my list. Was Brian Stanver Steve Cantwell too? And again, WEC thirty five, a great card there. Yep. Brian Stanver Steve, because again, Brian Stan, it was your typical knockout artist who hasn't been to the first round, but they had a great story with Stan. You could tell they were trying to pump him up, and rightfully so. He's a great guy, and he had a decent career. It's not like he was going to be a world champion again, but 
Uh, you can't blame the WEC for gambling on him, but they were pumping up stands super hard. Uh, it was a questionable stoppage, right? The first fight was Steve Cantwell, and mm-hmm. Steve Cantwell comes in and survives the storm and is just picking him apart with kicks. And uh, good post-fight interviews. Both guys are super humble and 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 about as classy as, as can be. And uh, that fight almost made my list as well. Yeah, I actually said this uh, when we were rewatching WEC 35 for at the MMA analysis, but. Like, I know they had different military careers, but Brian Stan and Tim Kennedy, you couldn't have, like, two more opposite personalities yes. for dudes that sort of came up with the same push to be like, oh, he's a great patriot, he loves his country, he served us, and, and now he's a fighter. Yeah. But just two totally different guys. It totally is funny. I did my... um. Uh, surviving the apocalypse article and i had brian stan number one and i didn't have tim kennedy on there so everybody gave me shit because like oh why not tim kennedy and, and you know the pc answer <laughs> which is true is you know i'm hipster dan and, and picking a, a guy who's like goes around teaching courses for surviving the apocalypse kind of felt like cheating <laughs> but then there was another part of it that kind of has to do with personalities and i saw one person in the comments like defending me who didn't didn't even know me but he got it right and he goes <laughs> I don't know, man. Tim Kennedy kind of seems like a douche. I don't know if I want to be. <laughs> I'm not trying to come at Tim Kennedy, but you know, there is a bit of a difference as to what Brad alluded to. Um, mm-hmm. Brad, I feel like I've been hogging the ball, though. Do you have any uh, honorable mentions you want to say before we get out of here? I'm going to throw it back to a couple like really old ones just because I, I feel like the, the early WEC stuff doesn't get enough shine. So yes, we, we talked about uh, a couple of these guys, not specifically, but in the, the tough one sense. Uh, and Chris Lieben and Mike Swick actually yes. fought for, uh, I believe at the time it was the, was it the middleweight or, uh, or WC light heavyweight champion? I think, feel like it had to be middleweight cause Swick was never that big. Um, yeah, I think but so. yeah, this was back at WEC nine, uh, and Lieben and Swick have a, a great fight. Uh, Chris Lieben in you know, even later in his career and, and early in his career, he used to get caught and dropped all the time. Oh, yeah. And he's another one of those guys that he always had that recovery. So yes. it, it just made fun, made his fights fun. And obviously that made it all the more special when Anderson was able to finally put the uh, the nail in his coffin and put him away. But, you know, he, he gets hurt a little bit here and survives the storm against Mike Swick and ends up getting a, a pretty nasty uh, KO win at the end of it. Uh, and just before, uh, my last one is sort of a, a crazy early MMA regional story, um, just in terms of the, the stuff that went on at that point. And it's Chris Lieben's WEC debut. Um, so this is a fight. I don't even remember what the guy's name was. I, I don't care. I, I could look it up, but whatever. Um, he's He's not an important character, except in the context that he exists in this story where... Chris Lieben, early in this fight, like maybe a minute in, uh, lands a low blow and breaks this guy's cup. Uh, and he's like, he's hurting. Um, it's not quite pride style where they get all the like Japanese officials in, surround him, and they start like digging their hands in his pants to, to like pull out his cup and put a new one in. But they, they manage to, like, it looks like the fight's going to get stopped because this dude's down for like five minutes. Um, but they get him out of the cage and they get a new cup in him. Um, 
but during this time, as they're taking him out of the cage, all of the fans that are, I want to say arena, but it's out in the like Tachi Palace fairgrounds where they used to hold those fights outdoors. Uh, they all start chanting, let them fight, let them fight. And then they actually bring the dude back in. They start up the fight uh, and Lieben gets rocked by this like, you know, guy who's probably as tubby as me, five foot five jobber. Uh, and then the the dude jumps on top of him, and Chris Lieben uh, lands the the Akiyama armbar on him to finish him off. Yes. It's just just a wild fight. Uh, or sorry, the Akiyama was a triangle, wasn't it? Yes. Um, yes. But still, he, yeah. he he lands a, a submission from his back uh, and finishes off this fight. And it's just like a crazy. You would only see this in poorly regulated regional MMA in the early aughts. Yep. Oh, that's a great that's a great shout there. Great shout. Um, my, my last one's not too many early ones. The earliest one, probably Eddie Wyland versus Antonio Benuelos have a good fight at uh, WEC 20. Um, Donald Cerrone versus Ed Ratcliffe at WEC 45. I just wrote that one down because it's a fun fight. But, like, if you, don't, if you don't know Donald Cerrone, just watch this fight. You'll swear he's the dirtiest fighter ever. Because, like, <laughs> essentially, like, it's a headline. I forgot that, like, this fight headline. And I know Ed 9mm Ratcliffe, who I'm like, man, I... <laughs> I I wonder if, like if he got more successful or did the UFC if he would have changed his name like uh, what was his name who uh, won the PFL Lewis Taylor who had like some kind of like gang name but he he changed oh, it Lewis like two guns or whatever it was yeah, yeah. I, was, I put the but then he changed it to put the guns down because um, yeah. I was like nine millimeter that's pretty violent that's a pretty violent nickname and I but I feel bad for the guy right because not only does he get like. Uh, thrashed right and kind of br- uh, what he was brought in for but he has to survive like all these fouls like all these different low blows <laughs> cage grabs like it is so many goddamn fouls i just want to throw that one in there mac and semzer versus cup swanson at usc 52 uh that's a fun fight worth revisiting mac and semzer had heavy hands that made a lot of his fights fun and lastly, Shane Roller versus Anthony Pettis at WC50, just for the fact of Mark Lehman screaming his lungs out, please, Shane, watch out the drive, please. Like, you just hear him, like, cracking, vo- voice cracking, crying, pleading to avoid the triangle. And what does Pe- what, what is, what is Pettis catch his guy in? A triangle. It's great. That was with, like, was that one with, like, 10 seconds left in the fight, too? Oh, yeah. It's, like, it's, it's, it's yeah. under 45 seconds for sure in the third round in a close fight. Yeah. I'm just going to throw one more out there Please. just because uh, I know that that you're, you're a big half guard guy. Um, so it was a, a good example of using half guard for a, a, a little bit uh, and, and really getting that deep half. And that's uh, Chase BB and Hani Yaya from WEC 30. Nice. Um, so Yaya in the first like minute or so has a deep knee bar on bb um bb bands to survive it and then for the rest of the fight he's just like on bb's on this mission he's like you know what i'm gonna try and submit this guy who's one of the greatest jujitsu practice practitioners in mma and it just turns into a a really sort of fun battle where yaya is trying to work his half guard game um and bb's just finding different ways to shut it down but not in like the traditional i'm gonna shut your half guard down and just smash you He's like using it to try and work his own submission. So it's it was a really fun sort of fight, even though Yaya yeah, in typical fashion gets super gassed. Yeah, Chase Beebe was another name that was fun to see again. I, I didn't go back to rewatch that one per se. Everyone knows I'm a big Ronnie Yaya fan, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to for those reasons. Man, this was this was a blast. We got to get out of here, Brad. Uh, we're, we're short on time. I knew we were gonna run along on this one, so that's totally okay. <laughs> uh, so I was stoked to have you. I was stoked to tackle this topic. And thanks to the listeners, by the way, who um. 
chimed in on their topics. You want to chime in on future topics, whether you want to suggest a topic to me at Dan Tom MMA or submit your list to the show, follow the show, the podcast at the PYN podcast on all social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I won't spam your feed. Of course, this show is hosted by MixedMarshallAnalyst.com, where you can find banners to support the show for free if you're a shopper of Amazon on it, or if you just want to go and, and subscribe to us on YouTube, iTunes, uh, leave us the favorable reviews on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That helps. We're going to be coming to Stitcher and a bunch of other platforms. Now that my stupid plugs are out of the way, Brad, thank you again for joining me, and the floor is yours to plug whatever you want, shout whatever you want. Um, you know, just try to keep it keep, keep the racial slurs to a minimum. <laughs> All right, I'll see what I can do. But uh, I, I don't really have a lot to plug. You know, I as you said at the start, um, I co-host slash hosted the MMA analysis. Uh, I'm starting to get back into it a little bit more uh, now that we're revisiting all these old fights. So give those guys a listen. Um, me slash those guys. Uh, and then the the old site that I used to work for was uh, MMA Oddsbreaker, Nick Kalikas, who you've had on the show previously. Uh, great work in terms of betting odds um, for not just UFC, but MMA everywhere. And other than that, like you should probably read and watch and listen to all of Dan's stuff because he actually knows what he's talking about, where I just bullshit and drink beer. No, I appreciate you guys. You, you, you guys have been one of the OG podcasts out there within hardcore circles. Um, you know, so uh, definitely provided me uh, w- with inter- entertainment from a fan perspective. And that says a lot, because especially these days, I really, my, my MMA podcast just keeps going down and down as far as what I listen to. So. Yeah. Take that for what it's worth. I appreciate you guys. Appreciate you coming on. Appreciate the listeners and those who support this show. We'll be back next week for some live chats, more top five shows coming your way. So be safe out there. Uh, Wash your hands and always protect your neck.